All right. So joining me is 37 time guest John Buck. <laughs> um, you may know him from our debate about the existence of God and his participation in the Odyssey. Also, we spoke about free will. I feel like you've also been on other times as well, um, which is kind of funny considering how little we actually disagree with each other or uh, agree with each other. Rather, but, um, and also we have Alex Strasser, who's like a scientist or something. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. A longtime friend. But yeah, so Alex Strasser and John Buck, welcome to the channel. And uh, why don't you guys introduce yourselves before we get started? Um, Alex, let's start with you. Sure. Well, I'm a PhD student at Texas A&M in material science and engineering. And yeah, hopefully I'm starting a master's in philosophy soon, but I got to get some stuff figured out, uh, but I have an offer there. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm super interested in philosophy of religion and ethics and um, yeah, philosophy of science, philosophy of physics. And then yeah, I do research, like my main research is in um, like nanomaterial stuff like that. So trying to do the uh, whole double whammy here and hopefully do a decent job defending finite theism today. We'll see. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, I'm John Buck. Uh, don't really have a strong background in philosophy. I'm like currently going through like my undergraduate in biochem. Uh, but besides that, I just enjoy like thinking and reading on philosophy in my spare time. Uh, yeah, I am at writer John Buck on Twitter. That's where the extent of my presence is online pretty much. And you'll be defending the one true, holy, exalted version of God today, whereas Alex is the heretic who will be summarily executed after this recording. Thank um, you. Just to get that straightened out first. Um, I guess before we go into your opening statements, are there any like preliminary things that either of you want to say about like what it is we're debating exactly? Uh, just, okay, so one thing I wanted to bring up is how probably Alex and I are pretty similar with regards to like how we conceive of God in the other areas. I think the main, like, with regards to God's omnibenevolence and uh, necessary, being a necessary being and creator of the world and stuff like that, I think pretty much we're just honing in on this one particular component to, to God, that being, like, how powerful he is. So, I guess one thing I'll say is that I guess this is technically, like, half of a devil's advocate debate because I, like, do hold to omnitheism, but I do think finite theism is super plausible, and I kind of hold to it for not philosophical reasons, like biblical and theological reasons. So, you know, kind of puts me at a little disadvantage. So, um, you know, if I get demolished, I'll just blame it on that. I kind of, in a sense, then uh, then I would win if I lose. So it's fine. But it it is only half of a devil's advocate debate, though. You do seem to take it like way more seriously than like you know john or like your average theist would right definitely yeah so. okay so uh john do you want to kick it off with your opening yeah so uh we forgot to mention to you emerson uh we're probably not going to keep to a strict 15 minutes but it, we're both basically aiming towards that so it's no big deal oh alex and i agreed to that ahead of time all right uh let me open up my notes real quick oh i have to share my screen all right, if you can bring that up, thank you. All right, um, all right. thanks so much to my fellow Christian brother, Alex, for agreeing to do this debate with me. I hope that through this, we can each come to learn from one another in charity. Also, many thanks to Emerson for agreeing to host this conversation, even though he is a dirty atheist and he shall be eternally deemed a hellfire, inshallah. All right, <laughs> so today's debate will be on the topic of God's power. I'll be defending the view that God's power is unlimited, meaning that for any state of affairs that is coherent for it to be brought about, God has the power to bring about that state of affairs. 
God is omnipotent, all-powerful. This does not mean that God can bring about theologically impossible, as that is inconceivable. So God can't con- God can't create a rock so heavy that it can't lift it, since the notion of a rock that bears the property of being impossible for an omnipotent being to lift is itself incoherent. Alex will be defending the view that God's power is limited to some degree beyond just the logically impossible. A finite God can't do certain things that would be logically coherent for that thing to be done. I'll leave it up to Alex to characterize the view that he finds most plausible. I, however, shall make the case that whatever version of finite theism that one holds to, it will always be a worse explanatory theory for our world than an omnipowerful conception of God. I will be making my case from a purely philosophical perspective, not from the Bible or any religious commitments. Rather, I'll be considering things strictly as a part of metaphysics. The goal of, uh, the goal of metaphysics in philosophy is to try to make the most sense of our experience through the postulation of fundamental entities or truths to our world. We might posit a necessary being to account for why there's something rather than nothing, or we might suppose that all fundamental entities are subjects of experience to answer why we happen to be conscious. Necessary existence and panpsychism are both examples of metaphysical theories. Abductive reasoning is the process of comparing epistemically possible hypotheses against one another to see which one can better account for the data, much like how a team of forensic scientists will try to try to determine the traits of a killer from the evidence that was brought to them. A philosopher will try to will try to determine the traits of fundamental reality from all the facts of our world. I will suggest that the limited theism hypothesis suffers from five different theoretical vices relative to omnitheism. These five can can be remembered by the mnemonic device, I am P U. (laughs) So when you think of limited theism, just remember that it is I imprecise, A arbitrary, M more ad hoc, P has no predictive power, and you, unparsimonious. The theory of unlimited theism, on the other hand, manages to avoid all of these theoretical vices and fares much better as a total explanation for the world. So let's go through each of these, starting with I for imprecise. Limited theism as a theory suffers from being inherently vague as to its content. Vague theories make vague predictions, so we should prefer more precise theories over imprecise ones, all other things being equal. The problem of vagueness that limited theism suffers from, which I'll add various theories of naturalism also share as a weakness, is the lack of a common definition for the view. For omnitheism, both atheists and theists tend to agree on how, just how we should articulate the view, even if there are, is some disagreement as to what attributes are essential or how these attributes should be defined. With regards to a limited God's power, how should we articulate this as a theory? Now, keep in mind that in order to stand in competition, limited theism must be expressed in such a way that's technically inconsistent with omnitheism. For if we were to say that there is a being of immense power, that would be both true of omnitheism as well as limited theism. So this articulation won't pick out anything unique to finite theism and could not act as a competitive hypothesis. Here are a few potential formulations for there being a limited God. One, there exists a being that is most, fundable to, is most fundamental to reality, but cannot do all things. Two, there exists a being that can do almost all things. Three, there exists a being that can, there exists a person that can do whatever is physically possible. Four, there exists a very powerful but not omnipotent subject. Five, there exists someone who can do anything except for X. (laughs) Each of these is just as good as any of the others, but it's not clear which should be the accepted articulation of the view. Still, the problem persists even for each of these definitions since they each leave open and undefined exactly how much or what kinds of powers that this being has. There's something inherently vague within the definition. For the first, we can imagine a world in which this 
proposition is true, but where the most, but where the most fundamental mind can in fact only do very little. Say it can only think about scratching an itch. This very limited mind that resides at a fundamental level of a possible world would technically fall under this definition, but would in no way resemble a god. For the second, it will at least entail that there is a great number of things that this being can do, but, it won't, but we won't be able to know a priori what it can't do. For instance, a being that could instantiate any number of two-dimensional entity could rightly be said to be able to do almost anything. He just couldn't add a third dimension to any of his creations. Or maybe the only thing that he couldn't do is create a universe out of nothing. So if this limited god found itself in a world with no matter or energy to work from, well, he'd be straight out of luck. For the third de definition, the vagueness resides in what turns out to be physically possible. In some theoretical worlds where there's only two atoms, the only things that would be physically possible to do would be to have the atoms attract, repel, or orbit one another. A person in this world that could do any of those things could rightly be said to be able to do anything physically possible, since those three things are the only things that would be physically possible to do in that world. But of course, that sort of person that could do so very little would seem very far from what we'd consider to be a god. For the fourth, um, being very powerful is a somewhat relative term. To an electron, a butterfly would seem very powerful. But if we were to try to absolutize this relative term so as to stipulatively mean whatever an ideal rational mind would consider to be very powerful, it would seem that there's still a significant amount of ways in which someone could rightly be said to be very powerful but not omnipotent that wouldn't give us very much insight into what powers they did have. For instance, I would think most rational beings would agree that the ability to spontaneously generate any number of marbles out of thin air would make them very powerful. And if this was the only thing that, that, that this mind could do, then they wouldn't be omnipotent. So if I was just given the information that there was a very powerful but not omnipotent subject, I wouldn't be able to tell beforehand if it was the sort of marble genie or if it was one of a more theistic type. And for the fifth definition, X obviously is an undefined variable. So technically, almost the entire possibility space could be plugged into X to make it so that this subject can do anything except for any action besides scratching his ear. And if we have no idea what sort of limits that God has, this will make God a very poor explanation for the world, as I'll touch on later. Of course, the finite theist is going to have to add in some features to their theory in order to avoid any inherent vagueness. But in so doing, they will introduce arbitrariness. So we move on to the letter A in my case. Limited theism is arbitrary in its details, especially compared to omnitheism, because for any limit put forward by the finite theist, it could always be asked, why that limit rather than some other relevantly similar limit? Quoting from Josh Rasmussen's co-authored book, Is God the Best Explanation of Things? A limit is arbitrary in this sense. The limit could conceivably have been slightly greater or slightly lesser. For example, if the foundation was the shape of an octagon, then its shape is arbitrary because it could conceivably have been nine vertices instead of eight. Why eight? That number is arbitrary in view of its conceivable alternatives." End quote. So for instance, suppose Alex were to say, God can do anything that doesn't spontaneously introduce new energy. We could ask, okay, why the addition of energy instead of say, new matter or new souls? There's nothing inherent to the concept of a finite God that would make us expect an inability to make energy out of nothing over that of making matter or souls from nothing. Of course, there could be some other specific criteria Alex might want to stipulate as to the limits of God, but he'd need to show why his stipulation isn't just an arbitrary line that God can't cross for no explicable reason. And if he does think there is some explanation, what about that explanation is more likely than a relevantly similar limitation being offered instead? 
Now, Alex could say, no, 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 there is some reason why God has these limits. And the reason is that we never observe God going beyond these limits in our actual world. But this response brings us into another criticism I have for finite theism, an M. Finite theism is more ad hoc than omnitheism, because to avoid the earlier problems, it must use what we already know God would have had to be able to do in order to create our particular world, in order to fill in the exact details for how much power God does in fact have. But the details of our metaphysical assumptions should be what explains the data that we observe, not what is explained by it. That places the explanation the wrong way around. Much like how a question-begging premise in an argument will be unpersuasive, since the only reason one would accept it is if you already accepted the conclusion, similarly, it would be entirely ad hoc if the only reason you should accept some specific limitation attributed to God was because, well, that's exactly the limit that's needed to fit with what we already know about our world. It's incredibly lucky that God just so happens to have all the particular powers and limits that he would need to have in order to create our particular world but not any better one, of course. Now, uh, limited theism has to rely, rely upon ad hoc reasoning in order to even get off the ground. But were they to avoid this sort of reasoning, that will fall into my fourth criticism, P. Predictive, um, limited theism has little to no predictive power. I'm treating predictive power as the ability for a theory to account for the data by itself. The theory requires additional suppositions to account for the data. Well, then that theory by itself has little predictive power. If I were to say, there's a mammal in my backyard. This assertion would be compatible with a great many different answers as to what type of mammal is in my backyard. It could be a dog, it could be a deer, a raccoon, a mouse, etc. The term mammal tells us something, but what it tells us is little. It has little predictive power. It needs more details. Similarly, if I were to say God is limited in, God is limited in power, this would at least tell us that there's some things that God can't do, but it won't tell me which ones he can and which ones he can't. My problem with finite theism as a theory is that the very facts of our universe could very well have been some of the facts that a finite God would have been unable to bring about. And if the fundamental positive of a theory could be incompatible with what's needed to account for the data, that's a problem. Thankfully, for any theory that asserts there is a being capable of bringing about any conceivable state of affairs, that theory will entail the fact that there is a being capable of bringing about all the facts present in our world. Of course, this could be raised as a problem of too broad a scope for omnitheism, but so long as we include God's omnibenevolence to the theory, that will help narrow the scope by restricting what sorts of worlds God would bring about. But if I were to simply tell you that there is a being of immense but limited power, that won't tell you if this being is able to, say, set the cosmological constants, create a universe like ours, resurrect a body, compensate those that suffer injustice, or hardly anything. Yet, under the hypothesis of omnitheism, all of these powers are entailed by the theory, so long as they're all logically coherent. And now for my final, but perhaps most important, criticism of finite theism, you. The limited th God hypothesis is significantly unparsimonious. Limit limited theism needs to add in many specific details about the theory in order to compare with omnitheism's much simpler ability to account for all the data. Theories which use categorical terms like all or no have an inherent simplicity to them despite covering a broad swath of information. These terms are widely used in the sciences and are all generally accepted as simple theories. For instance, the theory all copper conducts electricity is a simpler theory than all copper on earth conducts electricity. Even though technically the set of all copper is greater than the set of all copper on earth, it's not actually more complex since the latter theory actually adds in the additional qualification of on Earth. So the broader theory, because it's simpler, should be preferred so long as both can account for the data equally well. 
So too, God can do all things is simpler than God can do all things physical, even though the latter is entailed by the former. This is because the latter includes an additional term physical as qualification, making it more specific and and thereby more complex. Universal terms can capture a great amount of circumstances without having to explicate each and every one. But when you deny the universal application, you now have to posit every particular instance of the term's range. Since the finite theist denies God's omnipotence in order to fully characterize God's power, they now have to say, God can create a world with a highly complex set of laws. He can, he can sustain that world in existence so long, for, long enough for complex creatures to come about. He can uh, reveal divine truths to these creatures through their cultural lenses. He can establish a union with each and every one of them so as to provide them with a satisfying afterlife, etc., etc. Not only that, but the theory would also need to explicate each and every one of the incapacities that this deity has as well, supposing that all these incapacities don't fall under some categorical umbrella. So the finite theist would also have to say, God can't prevent every single instance of gratuitous suffering. He can't reveal himself adequately to all who are open to relationship with him. He can't stop religious disagreements from violently dividing nations and families. He can't answer everyone's prayers. He can't perform most miracles, etc., etc. This model of God is going to take up pages upon pages just to entirely elaborate what the view is. And that's only if we can know beforehand what all of his powers and limits are. So, Insofar as simpler theories are more probable, or at least are theoretically preferable, we should reject finite theistic models of God and instead embrace the infinitude of God's power. These are all my criticisms of limited theism as a theory. Finite theism is imprecise, arbitrary, more ad hoc, not predictive, and unparsimonious. As a theory, limited theism tells us I am PU. Uh, I will add, however, that all of these points that I've just made would also apply to any non-omnipotent theories of the world's foundations, including naturalism. So don't think that this debate is only relevant for Christians and Theus Emerson. Your ass is on the line here, too. Um, all right, seeing as I have time, hopefully, yeah, or do I have time or not? Uh, uh, yeah, no, go for it. Okay, yeah, this will be real quick. Uh, I'd also like to offer one further consideration for finite theism. Many people seem to lean towards finite theism as a response to the problem of evil, because if God is is unable to prevent all evil, well, that would give him some excuse as to why there is so much evil in the world. The greater amount of evil, the more limited God likely is with regards to being unable to prevent it. But surely, if God is so limited that he cannot prevent every evil, how confident should we be that God will be powerful enough to later compensate against all the instances of injustice that are had in this life? If God can't stop an innocent fawn from the pain of a forest fire, then perhaps God similarly can't provide happiness to that fawn in some sort of animal afterlife. And if God can't make himself clearly known to all non-resistant non-believers in this life, why should we think that he'd be able to do so in the next one? The finite theist has no principled reason for accepting a restriction of God's power in one domain, but not the other. If they were consistent, they should think that God's limits resemble one another, no matter the domain as that follows the principle of uh, induction that is underlying all of scientific practice. Additionally, supposing that God intentionally created our world, I would expect that if God were all good, he'd not create a world that could allow for evils to remain undefeated, as that would violate some deontological principles that God is committed to, given his perfect nature. Now, since Alex is a consequentialist, I don't think this objection will be very persuasive to him, but at least for me, who has deontological sympathies, I would find it quite hard to praise a God that would allow 100 million people to experience horrendous evils that go undefeated just so that 100 billion could experience the glories of heaven. 
Now, uh, I might expect a limited god to instead opt for making a much smaller world where, say, only 10,000 souls uh, managed to exist so that they could all be given the opportunity to find perfect happiness in the end, rather than for him to create a world as vast as ours is, but where his power to save is much more sparse. So if you're, so if you're a theist who places limits on God's power, you may also want to place limits on his goodness as well, so as to ensure that he'd be the sort of being that's willing to create a world as broken as ours since it'd be unlikely his power was enough to secure ultimate justice in the end for everyone. And with that, I complete my presentation. Thank you all for your time and attention. Oh, uh, and by the way, did you know that my guide can beat up your guide? All right, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that, John. Um, we have some commentary from the audience. Ben says, Alex hasn't even spoken yet. <laughs> exactly he's been rendered speechless <laughs> so john your your case is like the finite theism models add to theism in a way that like ultimately harms like theism's probability like just to give one example it's less simple you know mm -hmm. and, and you know so insofar as we should favor simpler theories over like more complex theories then that would harm you know that, that would harm its plausibility Okay, so I mean, I guess I'll hand it over to Alex, um, even though there's plenty I want to say, especially for you know, in response to the gratuitous shots at naturalism in your presentation. But anyway, um, Alex, yeah, let's uh, let's hear what you have to say. Yeah, all right. So thanks a lot, Emerson, for um, having us on, and John for asking me to do this. I'm always excited to talk about these things, and I think finite theism should get more discussion. So you know, I'm happy to uh, to talk about it. Um, I can start off with one point of agreement. I, I like uh, I like John's acronym a lot, and I agree. Uh, URPU. So, and I hope to show that here today with uh, <laughs> with omnitheism. I think uh, does have some serious issues with it, and finite theism I think does have some points in its favor. So, I just hope to hope to show that here. Um, my working definitions: omnitheism. There's a necessary triomni personal creator. Um, whereas finite theism is a necessary and omnibenevolent personal creator, but is finite in power and knowledge. And what I hope to do, at least, um, yeah, I guess one of my key things, I just want to suggest that this is like a possible research program, and I want to kind of lay out a more normal version of finite theism that doesn't require, you know, like process theism or Mormonism or something like that, like pretty standard theistic commitments, um, but restrict power and knowledge. And my specific model that I'm going to try to throw out there, my working models, I got a sufficient power knowledge to create the universe, but not significantly more than that, and hope to motivate that. Um, but yeah, very little work's been done on this topic. So I think like this model and many other ones should also be investigated for their consequences, how viable they are, things like that. So I kind of hope like philosophy of religion will give more attention to, um, to finite theism. So I want to zoom out a little bit and just talk about what makes a divine being a divine being. Um, what is fundamental to God's nature? That's like the question of metatheology. And I think that's important because finite theists and omnitheists, I think, usually have very different starting points for what makes God God. Finite theists are normally going to go for a creator theology, where God fundamentally is the creator of all else or the creator and sustainer of all else. Whereas omnitheists are going to start with perfect being theology. God is the greatest conceivable being. And this is like 
the standard meta theology of philosophy of religion. Um, but creator theology rather like is a pretty natural pathway to finite theism. And so, um, and I think finite theists are probably going to gravitate a lot more towards creator theology and then omnitheists towards um, perfect being theology. And so I think while there is like some possibility of crossover, it depends on your background commitments. Um, but generally speaking, like, um, Finite theists are going to be creator theologians, and omnitheists are going to be perfect being theologians. So I'm kind of kind of work under that um, assumption throughout, and I think that's that's going to be relevant for how we explain like God's properties. And uh, check out this book for for more on this topic. So this is important for how you derive some of the properties that aren't fundamental to God. So if you start with God as the creator and sustainer, then you can get kind of a lot out of that just from that point. Get that God is personal. He's very knowledgeable, very powerful. If he created the cosmos. He's going to have power over it. And if he's sustaining it, you know, he's going to have knowledge of what's going on, uh, but not necessarily omni of those. Um, and then timeless, spaceless, and material. If he is kind of the source of time, space, and matter, then he himself um, wouldn't be made of those things. And then changeless, uncaused, beginningless, creative. So all those things, I think, just starting from the starting point of God as the creator um, which looks a lot like a stage two cosmological argument type um, reasoning, then you can get like a lot of a lot out of that and not and not it doesn't entail omni properties um, automatically. So now looking at um, natural theology, I think there's some motivation here for finite theism. When we look at the arguments for God's existence, quite a few of them, so like Craig's Kalam or Gail Proust Rutten's arguments, you can't you can't show that um, God has these omni properties, um, but only just powerful and knowledgeable enough to create the cosmos that we see before us. And I think that's saying something. Um, this is true of quite a few arguments for God's existence. When you look at them, they don't automatically entail um, like like maximal power and knowledge. And this is true even on pretty standard um, stage two analyses of these arguments. And uh, I think I think that's significant and surprising. Um, the, yeah, the only arguments that you can get to maximal properties are the ontological arguments, and pretty much everybody already agrees those are garbage, um, except for the one that I thought of uh, using creator theology that doesn't entail omni properties. That one's great, but the rest are garbage. So I think this is kind of surprising, um, given like if God did have his omni properties, I think this I think we need kind of a good reason from John in order to posit, to make the leap from finite properties to the omni ones, especially when finite properties fit so much better with our background knowledge. And I think, so I think this points to a surprise um, a little bit for omnitheism. So when we look at creation, I think, I think, so his creation is going to reflect his properties. So John and I, omnitheists and finite theists can kind of agree on some of the motivations God might have for creating the universe. And I think this suggests some reason for why. Um, so God's creation is going to reflect his properties. One of those is that God wants to display his attributes and display his glory and be glorified, since omni properties are going to be more glorious. And um, and if he wants to display like the properties he does have, we would expect that the omni properties would in fact be displayed in creation. And secondly, God wants to have intimate relationships with uh, his creatures. So in order to do that, like you need to have a connection um, with that person to know who they are and more about them. So in order for um, God to do this, then he should actually make himself known. And so the fact that he doesn't seem to reveal himself in this way, pretty much everyone kind of agrees that uh, 
you know, when, when you do stage two arguments, for example, like you don't need to posit on properties to explain like the cosmos. And this kind of points to like, okay, so God, God only shows himself, um, like obviously to have, he doesn't obviously have omni properties. So this kind of points to like, it's kind of like catfishing in reverse. Um, so like actually God is way better than how he shows himself to be in nature, like a reverse divine catfishing. And I don't think that's like a super good look. So I think the best explanation of this is that God actually just is finite. And um, more specifically, like given that, when we think about the creator um, and think about like an artist who paints a piece of artwork or, you know, somebody who makes like if, if they want to build some, you know, engineering like robot or something, but wants to have like an inter interaction with the person, they're not going to do significantly worse than their best. If they're trying to put themselves on display, then they're not going to like, yeah, do at a level much worse than they can do. And so I would think that like, uh, God wouldn't be significantly more powerful than how he demonstrated himself in nature to be. So I think I think that gives some motivation for like my specific model about um, not being significantly more powerful and knowledgeable than what it takes to create our universe. And then a secondary consideration or a second consideration is when we look at the fine tuning argument, I think this favors finite theism. So when we look at um, the probability of a life-permitting universe on two different models of theism, we want to look at the number of possible life-permitting universes compared with the number of total possible universes on that model of theism. And the um, probability is going to end up being a pro proportional to that fraction, at least. So this is like drawing on uh, Neil Manson's work. The other thing to consider is that some of the fine-tuning parameters when looking at the standard model of particle physics and cosmology, things like that, the ones that are, you know, if you change just slightly, then um, the, universe, you know, the universe couldn't support life. Some of them vary um, in such a way such that if God created a universe with like a slightly higher or lower value that like differs in how much it takes to create that universe, like how much power it requires. So like creating a universe with more energy, more number of dimensions, or a higher mass is, uh, is going to take more power just kind of intuitively speaking. So just consider an example here, like some parameter varies from zero to 100, and the life permitting range of that parameter is from 25 to 50. And then about on the 100 is kind of where the, where it takes the most capability to create that. On an omnitheist picture, he can create any of these universes. And so the fraction of life permitting ones is one fourth. If on a finite picture, God can't create all of those universes, so consider a model that's just like a little bit less than Omni, then, um, then there's going to be some impossible universes you can't create. So then this fraction of the life permitting range goes up. It goes to one third instead of one fourth. And this is a general point. So if you have some parameter that scales with power in this way, if you reduce the power from omnipotence, it's going to increase the proportion of the life permitting range, which in turn implies that the probability of a life permitting universe on finite theism is greater than on omnitheism. Now, that was just kind of a made-up example. Uh, let's look at an actual parameter. So let's look at the number of dimensions in the universe. So we live in three spatial dimensions, one time dimension, and we couldn't live in any other combination of dimensions. It's either too unpredictable, simple, or unstable, et cetera. So 
Um, and it also just intuitively takes more power to create um, more number of dimensions. It's more complicated, harder harder to deal with. When you work with physics models, video game design, et cetera, like the 1D case is going to be the simplest. And then you're going to generalize to 2D, 3D, to n dimensions, et cetera. Uh, same thing with time. Like statics is pretty much always going to be uh, easier to deal with, require less capabilities than dealing with the dynamic dynamical situations. So if we cut off some of God's power to be not significantly more than what it takes to create our universe with three spatial one-time dimension, um, so for example here, then the life-permitting fraction is going to be one-fifteenth, which is going to be way greater than you know some arbitrarily small number um, because only God can create like any number of dimensions, for example. And this is kind of a general point. There's a number of fine-tuning parameters that look like this. Uh, there's eight of them, and none of them that favor omnitheism. So I think this is another consideration that favors finite theism, is that it increased the proportion of the life-permitting universes God can create. And I think, furthermore, I think there's problems with omnipropities, um, pretty serious ones that finite theism doesn't have to deal with at all. Um, so there's coherence issues, whether that's against like single properties or against like certain combinations of properties. And then certain, yeah, I mean, pretty much all logical problems of evil are going to go away on um, on finite theism, whether that's like the classical one, Schellenberg's new ones, a couple other new ones that have been developed. Uh, these aren't, aren't going to apply to the finite theist case. They rely on um, on the theistic commitments. So yeah, some of the some of the problems with omniscience. So you have yeah, if if God's omniscient, does that imply that God has experiential knowledge? So one, it just kind of seems um, difficult to to deal with that. Like, how, how does God have experiential knowledge of things that he, like, seemingly hasn't actually experienced? And if he doesn't, then I know, and probably, like, most of my knowledge, God wouldn't have. That seems pretty bizarre to say for an omniscient agent. Um, if he does, then it seems like he's psychologically no longer unified, which is kind of a requirement for personhood, it seems. Similar. Um, does God have the experiential knowledge of doing something morally wrong? There's certain set theoretic paradoxes that have it to do with the set of all truths. So it seems like God couldn't like know the set of all truths or like difficulties with knowing the actions of free agents. All these kind of suggest that, you know, some, some reason to think that omniscience might not be um, attainable or is incoherent or, or something like that. And of course, like omnitheists have been dealing with this, with this issue for like, you know, a couple thousand years or whatever. So what do they do? Seems like they give some pretty ad hoc restrictions on what God would know. So, for example, like if God believes all true propositions that are knowable to God, well, you know, sounds great, but rocks know all propositions that are knowable to rocks. So now rocks are omniscient, and I'm pretty sure uh, theists would not want to affirm that rocks are omniscient. Other ways to modify it, you end up with like leaving out first-person indexical information, temporally indexical information. So you end up with all of this definitional gerrymandering in order to salvage omniscience from these conundrums that face um, face what it means to be all knowledgeable. And so this seems like, yeah, it ends up not being really predictive. It ends up being ad hoc because uh, everything just ends up being informed by my background metaphysical commitments rather than like telling me God's omniscient. Uh, it's bit, that's being informed by something entirely different. Same thing with omnipotence. So there's there's so many different accounts of omnipotence that Kenny Pierce has provided us this nice schema for generating accounts of it. And so it's just that God can bring about any state of affairs. 
that satisfy some condition C. Now, what is that condition? Of course, a lot of disagreement. Uh, if you restrict C to B, God can bring about anything conceivable. Well, it looks like mathematical falsehoods are conceivable. For example, trying to derive the consequences um, in a proof by contradiction, they need to be able to conceive the consequences. Um, if it's just what's logically possible, then like how in the world can God bring about two plus two equals four? Or you know, can God scratch his ear? You have incompleteness issues here. If it's at the level of metaphysical possibility, which it kind of seems like John's somewhere in there, if it's conceivable to bring about, um, then it looks like you know God can bring about moral wrongdoing um, or can commit moral wrongdoing. And you know, usually theists want to try to avoid that. And uh, if you restrict it to being consistent with its nature, then again, stones are going to be omnipotent in this case, um, or something that can only scratch its ear, things like that. So all this suggests to me, um, there's a lot going on that doesn't seem to be really fruitful or predictive. There's this definitional gerrymandering. Um, it seems like, you know, a lot of these accounts are precisely, have, have the same precise structure that John was critiquing. You know, God can do anything or know anything except for X. And there's just a lot of people filling in the blank uh, with different X's. Um, so that seems to not make it very predictive because it's just informed by our background metaphysical commitments. So, yeah, I just think you don't need to get bogged down in all of these, you know, pointless questions. Can I make a rock so green that he can't lift it? God chop off all three of his arms. You know, these are these are kind of like humorous renditions of uh, pretty standard problems for omnipotence. And I think, yeah, I guess there's a lot of more interesting questions um, about finite theism, for example. And if your theory just has like, you know, so many different anomalies, like 25 more anomalies, then uh, maybe it's just not a good theory. It's a virtue of a good philosophical theory to solve a lot of philosophical problems. And finite theism kind of like resolves a lot of these uh, coherence issues that it doesn't have to worry about. So I think, yeah, rather than um, asking if omnipotence needs an additional 37th conditional clause on how to make it coherent, um, I think that there's just a, a more interesting model to try to investigate as a natural theological project, looking at like the different parameters of the fine tuning argument, if they follow the same trend or just looking more in depth at other arguments for and against God's existence. It just hasn't been interrogated, interrogated the same way that omnitheism has. And so I think it, it should be. Um, yeah. So in some, Finite theists usually use this different meta-theology, creator theology, as the coherent and kind of explanatory framework basis. Natural theology doesn't seem to demonstrate omni-properties, which is kind of surprising, I think, if he does have omni-properties. And um, fine-tuning, I think, gives some reason to favor finite theism. And I think there's a bunch of problems with uh, the omni-properties, like ad hocness, unpredictive, unparsimonious, the same thing John alleges for finite theism um, with omni-theism. So I think finite theism should be taken very seriously, much more than it currently is. So yeah, thanks. Cool. That is all. Thank you. Yeah, that was that was great. Um, I don't know if I'm more upset about John's comments about naturalism or your comments about Mormonism, but I guess we'll just have to move past that. <laughs> yeah, um, I was going to apologize for that. <laughs> Jeez, I bring you both on my channel, and you both attack me personally. <laughs> um, so here's Joe trying to give me a stroke. Um, if God is finite, then how could there, how, and when, you for which could be? <laughs> this is one of those perennial philosophical no, questions. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great question. Thank. Yeah. Um, so uh, uh, some of you in the audience might know this is the second limited God debate that. 
I've hosted in like, you know, a month or two. And the reason is that I find this topic like super interesting. And that's mostly because I think that this it would be kind of like game changing for the problem of evil, even though a lot of theists kind of downplay that. Um, yeah, I, I think that that it really would kind of um, open up interesting new avenues if suddenly we weren't saying that God was like totally unlimited in power and knowledge and maybe even goodness. Um, there was kind of a there was like this meme on Twitter, which surprisingly went viral because a lot of like religious things don't seem to be very popular, like in mainstream discourse. But there was like a it was referencing like the gods in ancient Greece, you know, like a typical polytheist model. And it was, you know, it kind of made reference to the fact that Christians and like monotheists engage in all these crazy like backflips and jump through all these hoops. And then the ancient Greeks are like, well, the gods are only so good and only so powerful. And there's just not really like a similar problem for them. Um, so obviously the finite theists um, who are Christians are not going to go that far. But I still think that it's like really interesting. <laughs> like it, it opens up interesting new avenues, which um, I don't want to. I mean, we could jump into that right now. But if you guys immediately have some um, some things that you want to respond to with your opening statements, uh, we can go that way as well. No, that's cool. We can start with the problem of evil, especially because, yeah, that's probably like what what motivates a lot of like leaning more towards uh, limited versions of God anyway. So, yeah. Um, can I yeah. can I make reference really quick to um, something that I think might be useful from Josh Rasmussen? Um, he has this analogy where um, there's a pitcher, John, <laughs> a pitcher of some kind of red liquid. <laughs> Um, and, uh, you know, so that represents all the evil and suffering in the world. And on the table, we have different bowls and cups and jars, and they represent different theodicies or defenses or just explanations of evil in the world, the kind degree and distribution of evil we see in the world. And, you know, like we can sort of pour out this red liquid into one of the theodicies and a little, mo a little bit more into this other, a little more into this other. And I think it's safe to say that, like, most theodicies can explain, like, a non-zero amount of evil. <laughs> like, I don't know of any theodicy that, that can explain all of the evil in the world, but, like, all of them, I think, can explain some non-zero amount of evil. And the idea is they all work together, and is there any red liquid left in the picture, you know? And if there is, is it a lot? Or is it a little? Um, and this sort of finite theism... Uh, model like it's one of those bowls on the table that no theist wants to use <laughs> but to me it seems like a pretty big bowl <laughs> like it could uh, hold maybe a lot of that red liquid um so I, I guess the value to the problem of evil mostly comes in setting up a different causal web to begin with not so much intervening in individual cases of evil so the place to think um the place to start would be thinking about God standing prior to creation, you know, and like in about to about to create the world. Like, I think that that kind of, like I said, opens up some some interesting avenues. Um, so, yeah, I guess I just wanted to put that on the table uh, before we move on. Yeah, no, that's great. OK, so then uh, I guess I have a question for Alex. Like, if God is finite in his power, um, is that uh, does that mean that, like, it's just not the case that God can say uh, pre prevent all gratuitous suffering from occurring. Yeah, let me let me say generally, like I think I'm going to disappoint Emerson and probably some atheists on this point because, like, I think I I agree with I agree with John that it is there is some concerns about having like a principled way to differentiate like. 
um, if we're going to limit God in with respect to like certain evil things, then it seems like we, he would be, would be limited in certain other things. So like, so I guess it's not obvious. Um, I think there needs to be more like investigation on this point. Um, so I guess one thing I want to say, can you remind me your question actually? Yeah. yeah. Just like whether, like it, if, we were to assume that, yeah, God is limited, so that means he just can't prevent all gratuitous evil. Yes, okay. So, yeah, I do think gratuitous evil might be, like, one way that I think the finite theist does um, have a bit of an advantage, at least at least in the sense that, like, if there, there's probably going to be a lot more plausible models of finite theism that are going to be, like, very compatible with gratuitous evil than there are, like, plausible models of omnitheism that are compatible with gratuitous evil. So I think, I think that's right. Um, but it is so like strictly, like strictly speaking, compatible. Um, I think more like I would think that they're incompatible on omnitheism, but I think strictly speaking, compatible on finite theism. So I mean, that is an advantage. Right. How how yeah. big of an advantage? Right. Like I yeah, guess it's going to bring up a possible disadvantage is if God isn't able to prevent all gratuitous evils from occurring in this world, then it seems like similarly God wouldn't be able to prevent uh, or wouldn't be able to, let's say, compensate all those instances of gratuitous evil that occur in this mm-hmm. world, which seems like that's going to diminish God's goodness in a, a sort of way. Like if God's creating a world in which there is gratuitous evils that occur that he's not able to like compensate the, their evilness that's occurring, then it seems like, well, maybe God shouldn't create that sort of world. Um, that, that's at least sort of my thinking. Um, yeah, so I do, I do want to reply on that point. Um, so I guess, like, one, I don't like compensation because I think that implies that, like, you can't make a difference in the world if God's going to compensate everything anyway. But that's, like, but presumably the same thing would apply to, like, other models of, of like, defeat and justice and things like that. Mm-hmm. So the same, like, concern still applies. So I do think, I do think when it comes to afterlife stuff, um, the finite theist does have, like, a principled way of kind of suggesting, suggesting there's some so ways, there's some moves there. So some finite, or quite a few finite theists think that God is limited just a nature of like physical matter, spatio-temporal relations, just like um, having to deal with, yeah, just like physical objects and how they relate to each other and like the the, ca- the causal interactions and everything like that. I mean, like Plato did um, and like a bunch of, and like quite a, quite a few fine ideas. So I think there's like a tradition there. And, and I think that's reasonable to think that like there's some, physical spatial temporal limitations like for example if god if god fixes the law of nature let's say he he has like emerson was saying like he can fix the law of nature at first mm-hmm. but then like after that he he can't really mess with it i think that's like pretty reasonable to like say that he can't like at that point once he fixes the laws of nature he can't do anything um beyond what's physically possible for example then like there's still the option once God, like if there's an afterlife, things like that, like God can bring people out of the spatio-temporal realm and then those limits no longer like apply. So God's going to have more power in his realm and, you know, wherever the heck heaven's supposed to be, but like not in this space time or whatever, then God's going to have um, like more power in that, more power in, in that region. And so I think, 
like I think Dilly talks about this in his article, A Finite God Reconsidered. He, he says, uh, like, and I think this is true. So I think this is another relevant point that, like, um, whatever resources a defender of an unlimited God has available are available to the defender of a finite God, including the guarantee of an eschatological solution. And he talks, yeah, I guess he, he goes through, like, um, and I think that's that's another point I wanted to make. Like, I think, generally speaking, the same kinds of things that an unlimited God can appeal to, a finite God can also appeal to. And well, I think the one, afterlife stuff. Well, that wouldn't quite be right. Because, like, in a, a, somebody who holds to an unlimited version of God, it's going to be entailed by the theory that that God would have the power to, let's say, compensate all instances of gratuitous evil that occur. Mm-hmm. But it's not going to be an automatic entailment under finite theism. Yeah, it's not going to be, like, trivially entailed. Um, but I think, like, if you think God's limited by physical matter and spatial-temporal relationships and, and that type of thing in, like, physical possibility. Yeah. Um, and that is, like, the source of God's limits, which I think is pretty reasonable, or at right. least that's a, a significant source of God's limits, then um, God would, I think, like, have we have reason to think that like, God would have at least enough power to defeat evil in, in the afterlife and things like that. So I, so I think that's... I think that sounds pretty reasonable. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I could buy that. Like, yeah, God being an immaterial being, he's just going to automatically have a greater amount of power when interacting with things of like kind. But when he's creating like a physical world, he's not physical. He doesn't, he can't right. do anything physical. Now, yeah. I'm worried though that that might like pose a problem for your um, fine tuning argument because like fine tuning sort of requires that God has the power to set the cosmological constants. And that seems mm-hmm. to be an action that resides outside the physical. Like there is an instance in which God basically has the power to do something that's not physically possible because he's setting what's physically possible and what's not physically possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I think, let me think. Yeah, I guess like I still think the same, like kind of it's still true that uh like even if we think spatiotemporal relationships or like physical aspects are kind of a significant source of limitation, I still think like intuitively creating things, um, like for example, with more dimensions, like are still strictly speaking, um so it, it's going to depend on like the finite theist model, but like I do think like you know more dimensions, more more massive, more energy, more complex universes, like are just going to intuitively require more power, and so like it's going to require a more advanced uh, model of God to create like things in um, in the like infinite dimensional space and and all that stuff. I so I think. At least when we're talking about like the global landscape of finite theist theories, I think strictly speaking, like there kind of has to be a boost still um, to like quite a few of of the theories. Even right. if you think that the physical and spatial temporal stuff is like a, at least a significant source of limitation, there's um, there's there's still like more complexity required and more more things required. I don't know. Yeah. Okay, well, then that's great. We can, if you'd like, Emerson, we can move into sort of the fine tuning argument that he had. Well, I, I did want to say one more thing about compensation, sure. if that's all right, because um, it, it's come up a couple times. Um, so maybe a limited God couldn't bring about a state of affairs after death that just sort of washes away everything or whatever else compensation is supposed to mean. I'm not exactly sure. But two things about that. First, it doesn't seem like much of a theodicy. Like it doesn't really help explain our observations if you just say like, well, it'll be compensated later. Like is the implication that it just doesn't matter that there's suffering? Like who cares? It'll all be made right later. 
Um, so, you know, I, I think compensation plausibly does not equal moral justification, but the bigger problem is that it just doesn't help explain the suffering that we see. And secondly, it's, it's not clear to me that a finite God couldn't like wash away everything in the fullness of time, you know, cause it's not like believers in a finite God think that God is only as powerful as like the president or something like he's still, he's not all powerful, but he's still a very powerful, very knowledgeable creator and designer. Um, you know, he's not yeah. even on the level of like a Greek God or something. Um, so yeah, it's, I'm, it's, I'm not sure that he couldn't compensate, um, you know, animals or humans in the afterlife. And I guess this raises a third point of like, okay, so do you think that everyone who suffers, you know, is going to be compensated in the afterlife? Like, I mean, that you're starting to sound more and more like a universalist, which is strictly haram. So I, I don't know how that would exactly work without just going full universalist, which of right. course well, should, like but I don't want to. Just like what you were saying, compensation doesn't equal justification. So like the mere fact that somebody is compensated for an evil that occurs to them, that's not automatically a good reason to allow that to happen. Rather, like... I would say that God offers uh, compensation basically to all creatures that undergo injustice in this life. And it's up to them whether or not they want to uh, take on that sort of compensation that's offered to them. Now, I do think that like uh, in order for a soul to be beatified in relationship with God, they have to undergo a significant amount of moral sanctification, basically, which can be difficult and also uh, not pleasant. <laughs> so for people that just are not willing to undergo moral um, sanctification or transformation, uh, like actually changing their character so that they now desire the good and reject the bad, um, th that, that's that sort of offer is going to be put into the hands of the creatures themselves. So like if they would rather not sort of undergo that sort of moral transformation, then it's perfectly within their right to refrain. And I don't think that God then just tortures them in hell forever for like rejecting him. Rather, like God puts them into a different state in which they're no longer suffering and no longer uh, being um, in inclined towards evil. Um, and what that might look like could go a variety of different ways. Um, but that's different from this debate. But yeah, I'm glad you sort of brought that up. Um, I did. I did have one more thought about mm -hmm. problem of evil. I just want to toss this out there because um, there's quite a few fine ideas, and I'm not sure. I'm just going to be really quick. So, like process theists definitely um, definitely do this, but I'm not sure. This it seems pretty whack to me, so I don't know how much I want to rely on it. Probably very little. But they they and some other people like this developmental theism, and this guy Edgar Brightman. He's a finite theist who is less weird than the rest of the process theist, still kind of weird. He's like a personalistic idealist. So, you know, I don't really like that. But anyway, he tries to he tries to argue like a finite God. He tries to argue it's like he's like relevantly similar. It's like an evolutionary force or something. And like so he's like yeah, there's some evolving of God or like struggling against okay. blah blah blah. So I don't know. Some weird stuff. And maybe that seems kind of reasonable and like my make evolutionary evil less problematic if god's like trying to trying to whatever anyway i'm just going to throw that out there yeah. i'm not sure I think, what i think about yeah, that. josh rasmussen has made the point before that like maybe in order to create creatures as complex as us there needs to be some sort of like evolutionary uh back history uh, or backlog that sort of brings that about because otherwise 
the being itself wouldn't be able to know how to create a creature like ours. It has to go through a sort of evolutionary process. I don't really find that very plausible given that like, well, there's instances where like people design alien creatures for video games and like the movie Avatar and stuff like that. And those creatures in that that movie or those video games didn't have like an evolutionary process behind them. They were just d designed ex nihilo basically by the CGI artist. But to come up with that idea, of course, we had to go through that. So, you know. Right. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. But I mean, there were people designing new animals even before the theory of evolution. So, uh, and I would imagine that God would have a much greater amount of power than us creatures. So he would able to be able to imagine such creatures as well. But um, yeah, okay. Uh, I wanted to bring up, yeah, something with regards to, um, well, I, yeah, the problem of evil still. If God is like unable to create, say, a world in which like, all gratuitous suffering is avoided, like some sort of causal law where like whenever an instance of pain would not benefit the creature in any way, that pain is just not had. Um, you would say that God just couldn't create a world like that, right? Or at least the finite theist would probably say something like that, I imagine. That sounds pretty good. Yeah. Okay. So I just want to put a pin that that would be an anthropic world that a finite God couldn't create. Um, but putting that aside for a second, it seems like then if God's like unable to sort of set what the psychophysical uh, laws are between the physical conditions and the mental states of the creatures in those conditions, I would similarly be, uh, I don't know, I would similarly expect that God wouldn't be able to like set whatever the laws were that would mean, okay, once this creature dies, that soul goes to heaven. Because <laughs> that's a sort of like connection between the physical and the mental that God apparently doesn't have a sort of causal power over. Um, now, I guess you could just stipulate, oh, well, he can't set, like, what instances cause pain and what instances cause uh, um, pleasure in the broad swath of cases. But at least in this one small case, he, he can do that thing. But that seems very, like, arbitrary and, in a sense, at, at a hog. Um, but, yeah, I just wanted to sort of bring that up. So you think that, like... Um, I guess the inability to create a world like without the gratuitous evil, or whatever, is connected. Like, I, I guess I wouldn't naturally connect that to psychophysical laws in this sense. Like, I would think, I don't know, I, I, w I wouldn't naturally think that like control over psychophysical laws is what kind of dictates that. I don't know. I mean, it is a sort of like pushback from the atheist that says, oh, if God sort of set the cosmo uh, the psychophysical harmonious laws, then why are they so bad? <laughs> like, there is that sort of assumption. If God can do this, why didn't he do, be do better, basically? So it does yeah. seem like they are connected in that sense. Yes. I don't know. What do, what, how do theists reply to that? I mean, I wouldn't think, I, I wouldn't want to accept that naturally. Uh, I like, mm. I, I mean, I would think. Like plausibly, there's 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 some independent metaphysical laws, um, maybe not psychophysical and specifically, but they might they might be some some other type of metaphysical laws that God can control, because mm -hmm. because even so, like when God creates, you would think there there has to be some type of connection between, um, like God's causal power and then the resulting thing that He creates. Mm -hmm. But and usually, like in the real world, that's explained by laws of nature, like physical right. laws. But prior to that, there is none. But like, it's still about the connection um, to like physical things. 
but uh, not necessarily like um, the psychological aspects, but it still seems to suggest maybe there are these metaphysical laws in order to connect like uh, creation and, and output. And so maybe like that rather is instead the type of, the type of limit um, that's going on. And that's like, that's much broader than say like the set of like physical laws um, Mm. or and like more fundamental, for example. So that's like, yeah. Okay. So yeah, that's interesting. Like if we think of uh, like, let's say there's some sort of metaphysical law, like as in a possible example, it's like the, the principle of material causality to where like the, uh, the only things that can be brought into existence are those that are brought into existence from some other material thing or like whatever begins to exist must have material cause. That's a simpler form of that. So like Mm -hmm. if God was say like restricted to only being able to act within the metaphysically possible or whatever the metaphysical laws are of the world, if God were to like find himself in a world in which like, he was alone, basically all by himself. There is no physical stuff there. And there was this sort of metaphysical law that nothing physical can come from something non-physical. Like, it seems like God would be sort of like stuck there, like where you can't make anything. That would, that would be That's true. Kind of <laughs> I, do, I do want to come back to psychophysical harmony in a second. Um, mm-hmm. We do have some questions that have been piling up. Um, but just one more thing I wanted to say about the problem of evil. Well, first, Alex, you mentioned process theology, and I can't say whether it's whack or not because I don't really understand it. But I do know that a lot of them, you know, Alfred North Whitehead and so on, like they're, they tend to be panpsychists. So I guess that's cool. Um, and you mentioned personalist idealism. I think, I mean, we might as well name drop a couple people, you know, related to finite theism. Like I think MLK was a personalist idealist. Um, William James, I just found out, was a finite theist. Sorry, John. Block out your screen first. But uh, yeah, just the the last thing I want to say about the problem of evil, maybe before we move on to some of these questions and and maybe back to psychophysical harmony, is I, I guess the <laughs> I guess one of the reasons I like it as sort of a response to the problem of evil is because it's not really like a purely moral response. You know, like it's sort of more like a logistical response, like, um, you know, so there doesn't have to be like a purely moral justification for the evil that we see in the world. It can be like like logistical, practical constraints as well. You know, like God is only so powerful or something. And I feel like that that seriously helps the theist's case that there doesn't have to be a purely moral justification for the things that happen in the world. So that's my my last little spiel since. Just like the last debate, I'm I'm the one defending um, the the finite theist with regards to the problem of evil. Um, yeah, there's at least one extra category of explanation that the finite theist can offer that the omnitheist can't. That, right. No, that's know, right. Yeah. yeah. Finding the principled version of that, I don't know. I can't help with that yet. Give me some time. Sure. I mean, I'm not. I I didn't want to appear too biased, but I, one question that occurred to me when John was was raising that point is like, well, I don't really, yeah, I can't really give like a principled description of like, okay, how powerful is God? Like specifically, it's like, but John, if I asked you, like, how powerful are you? Like, how would you, how would you even describe that? Like, how, like you could maybe list some abilities you had, like you could give examples of things that you could do or couldn't do. But if you're talking about like a super abstract principled quote unquote description of like your power, like I'm not totally sure what that would look like, you know? So it doesn't seem like it's totally fair to expect that of of like finite theists 
I mean, I can at least set, uh, rattle off a few things that I know I can and cannot do. I can't breathe underwater. I, I can lift this bottle. So there's at least like two things that I can throw out there. But like, if I were to just give you like, okay, there is a being of immense power, but it's not omnipotent. How do you know what it can and can't do? It could be like, it can't lift a bottle, but it can do everything else besides that. And it can breathe underwater, but it can't do other things. So I don't know. That's, I, th I think the reason why, like, I don't know, maybe it's easier to sort of point to like what a person here in, uh, here in the physical world can and can't do is because we just observe what they can and can't do. But for God, we can't directly observe what he can and can't do. So we have to basically assume what he can and can't do. And so like an assumption that carries with it, like a near infinite number of like posits is going to be pretty rough, but like, if but, you, I mean, it couldn't, you also just think like, Oh, it's not an assumption. It's just an inference, like based on the character of the world, like Alex's like case said, you know, like comes from like, like the creation is going to mirror the properties of the creator. Like, you know, I'm also reminded of um, David Hume's dialogues about the, uh, about the design argument and everything. It's like, mm -hmm. he, he does make some similar points here, you know, where like you could kind of construe some of the arguments raised in that book about, you know, like in defense of finite theism, because it's more similar to like designers we actually have experience with. Like, yeah, I know tons of finite designers. I, I know of zero infinite designers right. personally. But if we're going to be like relying upon the data of our world in order to infer what powers and limits God must have, that's just going to be like assuming basically, oh, our world is one of those worlds that God could have brought about. But like you, you can't just assume that off the bat. You're, you're, we're trying to like argue for why that must be the case, given what we observe. But like, yeah, I mean, I, I could similarly argue like, look, given the observations of this world, there's a lot of things that we have in this world that and um, a, a limited, a specifically limited God wouldn't be able to bring about. Like we were just talking about a, a God that was constrained by material causality and things like that. Like that God wouldn't be able to like bring about something from nothing. But like we have something in our world. So obviously that version of, of finite God is false. So if, but if you look at like how Amethyst end up answering the same questions, like do, whether or not God knows um, the future, things like that, then <laughs> the story they're going to tell is like they're going to go look at like what theory of time is true. Okay, like presentism is true, therefore there's no facts about the future, therefore God doesn't know the future. But like, I mean, presentism might be true in our universe because they have a privileged foliation that's available in our cosmological model, but that's specific to our cosmological model. You know, there's solutions to Einstein's field equations that like don't allow privileged foliation, so presentism would have to be false. And so like seemingly God, you know, um, so it's like, I don't think like appealing to facts about our universe is necessarily prob problematic when we're trying to make the inference back to like the properties of God, because it does seem like Omnitheus end up appealing to the same thing, and then they just end up like changing the definition of omnipotence to make sure it works with like what we know about, you know, our universe. Um, in some cases, some cases it's just metaphysical necessity, but in some cases it's like contingent things like theory of time, for example if there's no facts about the future because of like presentism, so something like that. But in order to do that, don't you have to like first presume, okay, the world that we exist within is one of those worlds that God could have brought about. And now that we are assuming that to be the case, what sort of things do we observe in our world? Oh, well, because there's atoms, we must know that God has the power to, I don't know, create atoms or like at least sustain atoms or something like that. 
but like that that's we're we're first presuming that yeah we happen to live in the type of world that a god uh, a limited god could bring about but um if god was limited to a certain extent he might not be able to bring about a world just like ours in fact a lot of the versions of finite theism basically require that god wouldn't have that power but when when we look at like Omnitheists, they end up redefining whatever omni-properties to make sure it fits with, like, our world. So it seems like they're kind of doing the same thing. Well, I mean, usually it's redefining it in regards to, like, incoherencies. Like, if omnipotence entails an incoherence to it, then we should redefine it, because then omnipotence doesn't mean anything at all. <laughs> but I think, <laughs> but, like, like, future facts, for example, is but like, for example, like future facts, um, mm-hmm. if there's no facts about the future, God doesn't know it. And like that, that's dependent on like a theory of time and the theory of time isn't um, like that could, that's maybe true in our universe, but it could, um, but like there's other universe, other possible universes where it's false. And so like, but people then say, um, oh, but like, you know, God can't know the future, so clearly we need to redefine omniscience to make sure it works with that. And that's, like, def- dependent on a theory of time, which yeah. is, like, true in our universe. Right, so, like, I got So, yeah, like, if, there is, if the future exists, then God knows the future. Um, similarly, if John Buck exists, then God knows that John Buck exists. So, like, yeah, we're going to be able to know, okay, given that John Buck does exist, or given that the future does exist, God's going to know what these things are. But, like... Yeah, it's not it, the the particular details of what God knows is different from like the extent of God's uh, knowledge base uh, or his power base either. I don't know. It seems like I I I I, I, I guess I admit there is like some similarity in some sense, but uh, not sure. the other one. The, the the like defining what powers God has based upon what we know He must have in order to have created our world. Seems much more ad hoc to me than just saying, okay, well, because I exist, God must know that I exist. Or because the future exists, God must know that the future exists. Because those are both already relying upon a a preconceived notion of what God's knowledge or power would be. Whereas the other one doesn't rely upon that preconceived notion. Um, I do have a, if we could go back to psychophysical harmony for a second. Like I, I was curious, Alex, if you thought that, um, you know, a finite theist could use the psychophysical harmony argument yeah i have thought about it very little and i've also thought about the psychophysical harmony argument for omnitheism very little and i don't i don't know i don't think i find it convincing yet for omnitheism or so i definitely haven't thought about the finite ideas case so yeah i probably don't have much interesting to say on on that i mean i i've thought about this just because i've heard some people say Oh, like Mormons can't use the psychophysical harmony argument, but mm-hmm. I, I feel like if you, as long as you think of your finite God as capable of making like a zombie or an invert or something, then God obvi- then God must have some control over the psychophysical laws, and it just strikes me as implausible to say that like, oh well, I've got this uh, you know very powerful creator and designer of the universe, but he could not have made like a color invert or like a you know or like adjusted any of the psychophysical correlation patterns and i feel like any conception of god that is like sufficiently godlike you know that's going to be within his power um so i just i I mean it seems like any theist is going to be able to make that argument and i've I've asked a couple 
um, Mormon friends just like, does that sound like the kind of thing that your God could do? <laughs> They're like, yeah, like that sounds plausible. So, I mean, as long as you could, I mean, rather than making it abstract, just look at specific cases. Like, could God alter the psychophysical correlation patterns? If yes, then he then you can make the psychophysical harmony argument. Right, but that's going to apply to every single power you could ask about God. So, like, I could ask uh, Alex, do you think God could have uh, altered the cosmological constants by one uh, uh, number, decimal point? Um, and if he says, yeah, well, then, okay, <laughs> then he could do that. And But, like, that's a sort of, like, problem of arbitrariness. There's, no matter what question you ask, it's going to be kind of arbitrary why a, a limited God would be unable to do one thing, but he could do the one just prior to that. Um, so, like, if we, a, a finite theist could say that, well, no, maybe God can only bring about um, physicalism uh, regarding consciousness. And so God couldn't create a, a zombie. Like, I'm sure uh, Tarek, he would say that God couldn't create a, a, a pea zombie because they're inconceivable. He was not one of the Mormon friends who said it was conceivable. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are other ones that would also, like, take my stance or something like that yeah, to say that I think yeah I, I, th I, I think it would probably end up I mean I think we should probably say it's necessary like whatever whatever limit God's end up having that it ends up being necessarily true and that I think it's fine to just say that's that's part of his essence to be limited to that to that degree just like humans we were you know our essence is limited to some degree and so God is in the same in the same way um, and and I think you know, I can pull an oppy and say, you know, a certain theory of modality is true, <laughs> branching actualism, you know, so if, all possible worlds share an initial segment. So, and God, you know, if God created the universe, then, um, you know, God's property of being in degree powerful is going to be part of that initial segment. So it's going to be necessary. And then it's explained in virtue of his necessity. Um, and at least we're in a better position than like to say, then saying the universe is finite, I think saying, you know, God is necessary, I think is uh, or well, well justified in, in saying that, especially on creator theology. Um, yeah. yeah. So would every single limit uh, of God, as well as every single power of God, have to be just sort of like posited as like, okay, that's necessary, this is necessary, and this is necessary, and that's necessary as well? I mean, I think on the branching actualism view, yes, on that theory of modality, because because all of those properties would be part of the initial segment of yeah. the of the possible world. So I would think so. I would think like even if like yeah, both theories basically have necessities at their base. It seems like if one theory has like a ton of necessities at their base, and another theory doesn't have a ton of necessities at their base, we should go with the one that has less necessities. Because like okay, let's assume that or like if we were to say that. The world began at uh, last Thursday, and it had all these necessary entities in it. And that, like, that was the initial space, uh, starting space for our universe was last Thursday. And that would be a whole bunch of like necessary entities, but because they existed at the initial start of the universe, I mean, there would be no explanation needed for all those necessities. But I would say that like a theory that has like all of the different entities in the world from last Thursday as all being necessary is going to be a much more ad hoc and implausible theory than one that says, okay, there's one necessary entity at the base of the universe. But it, it, it is simpler, so it must be true. 
he's just a bunch of garbage <laughs> Damn. I mean, wow. okay I, I was gonna mention like someone someone who likes the limited god stuff is philip goff and he had a really interesting conversation with josh rasmussen about this and he was kind of agreeing with everything josh was saying about like you know the, the stuff about arbitrariness and um the value of simplicity but what philip kept saying he was just like look i think i agree with you about all this but you want the simplest theory that accounts for the data you know he's like in the limited god accounts for the data of evil and suffering much better than the other than the unlimited god model so it's a better theory even though it's less simple and that's like a totally normal way to reason about other models as well right and i think i do try to motivate like my model of atheism a little bit so there's that um I do have, I kind of thought John was going to say something. It sounded like I was just being a very biased moderator for there for a second, but I guess that's fine. Um, so uh, Ken asked, um, this, we were talking about God sort of setting the laws and not being able to change them after that. Um, you know, the finite God, he said, this also po poses a problem for any miracles. If God can't break the laws of physics, then, ra uh, then raising people from the dead, walking on water, turning water into wine would be off limits. So Alex, what do you have to say about that? And, you know, more generally just about how like finite theism fits with the Bible. Sounds good. Well, one thing I would say is that, yeah, I guess. So there's a lot of different debates on like models of divine action. I think we should go with the non-violationist interventionism. Like Jeff Kapersky has a nice book about this. But so like if, if I were really to flesh out my views, like I would say we should... <laughs> Like, I probably would, um, like, I'm not sure I could actually agree with what I said earlier, but that's not important. So, um, if, so the laws of physics, I think the best, who, who was it? Uh, who wrote all the stuff about, like, dualism and the conservation of energy objection? Pitts, I think, wrote some stuff about it. He talks about, like, the best way to reply. And I think, and I think this ends up being generally correct. So we should define the laws of physics in a way that's conditional. So it's like assuming there's no outside or external interactions or something. And this this seems to agree even like physically, I think, because um, like you have sometimes you might have multiple forces interacting on the same thing. And so like if I just plug in the weak force interactions into a system where there's actually weak force and electromagnetic interactions and it'll like give the wrong result. This is what we need to understand like can uh conditions when it will and will not apply or could there could be multiple outside forces so i think this is also true in like mental causation for example so i think there's it's pretty well motivated to define them in this way and i think the same is true like if there's god's god's outside intervention so it wouldn't be that like we shouldn't say god breaks the laws of physics but rather he just violates the antecedent of them so like they don't like the consequent wouldn't follow so um they don't actually hold true um so then then like if that's right then uh then like on that conception uh god would would still be like doing physically possible things because like they're not applying to outside intervention and so then he would still be able to do those things um that's like what i would actually end up saying but that's then you I wouldn't have the same motivation for what I was trying to say about God being limited by physical possibility. Um, 
But on the biblical point more broadly, okay, I have one slide I want to show. Uh, because, so I think this comes down to like some hermeneutical questions that I think are kind of important on how philosophy interacts with the Bible. So let me share my screen here again. So like some, some of the reasons why people might say that like God is omnipotent or whatever is because, um, statements like these, these claims about can do all things, know all things, etc. But there's also like obvious exceptions to them. So uh, the point, the general point I, I want to make is that there's obvious exceptions to them in scripture, and there's not like a really good principled way of picking out the exceptions that omnitheists find palatable and like finite theists find palatable from like a hermeneutical perspective. So for example, like the very first one says that Paul can do like I can do all things, um, but clearly Paul, even in his glorified body or whatever, like isn't actually omnipotent. So like that's not a statement of omnipotence. So when 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 Matthew then says like God can do all things basically, then like it's not obvious that's a statement of omnipotence. Same thing with you know somebody saying that Jesus knows all things, but like there's still exceptions to that. So there's kind of like this tacitly restricted quantifier in scripture um, using Van and Wagon's notation or or label in a different context. So there's like and also like you know God can make square circles or whatever. So there's, you know, God can't like chop off all three of his arms. There's, you know, there's obvious things we want to say are exceptions and there's not like a principled way to say that, like, you know, from our perspective, you know, even the realm of physical possibility is like kind of in, uh, in the realm. And then like, of course, like there are restrictions given on scripture, like God can't lie, God can't deny himself, things like that. So yeah, so I think like there's not really a clear statement either way um, about like omnipotence. It doesn't actually really specify all things in the omni sense as opposed to all things in the finite sense. Because like, and yeah, Shokovsky says something similar. So like, <laughs> so John and I agree that like god can do absolutely everything except for all the things he can't do and then we plug in different things for like what he can't do and so so like i don't think there's really like you know that that great reason to like pick out the omnitheist exceptions over the finite theist like in the biblical case and also in the real life case really um yeah Uh, okay, so did you say earlier that like you don't think that simplicity is a virtue of a theory? <laughs> I don't think it's an epistemic virtue. I think it's pragmatic and it's useful in science. It makes experiments and computation and theory easier, and it helps you like get to truth faster. But it doesn't automatically mean you should like have a higher credence in simpler theories, uh, just in virtue of it being simpler. Yeah. Uh, even even in a tie. Yeah. Really? Okay. Because like I'm thinking of something like the new problem of injection or something like that, where like you'll have two theories, basically one that says all emeralds are green. And then the other theory that says all emeralds are grew, which means that all emeralds are green up until the point 3000, at which point they will become blue. And it seems like both of those can account for all of the data that we'll observe. Like whenever we look at an emerald, Oh, it's before the year 3000, it's going to be green. So like, that gives us pretty good ability to account for all of the data. But those two theories, um, one's like not as simple as the other one, because the other one contains the additional qualification. 
oh, it has to be before the year 3000, and then after that, it's going to turn blue and stuff like that. And so it seems like a, a good response, by my lights, to the, the new problem of induction is going to be, well, simpler theories are just more likely to be true. And because they're I don't know, able to account for the data without positing as many qualifications, basically. And so that's why I would think of like simplicity as a virtue. When when I looked at the group question, I, you know, I thought the takeaway was basically that shows that syntactic simplicity or wait. Yeah. Syntactic or semantic. I get them confused. Maybe semantic. Semantic simplicity like isn't useful because I can define I can just redefine a word that like I can plug in. I can build in like 25 other words or phrases and like have that one word mean the thing like grew you know it's like green if after 3000 or blue before that i don't remember exactly right so i think i thought the lesson was that like a certain version of simplicity doesn't actually work so well, i think no, no no that would be a complex theory that says that like you have all this like much broader meaning to the word grew than you do to the the term green because Green just means, oh, it's green. <laughs> but grew means, oh, it's green up until the point at which the year 3000. So there's like... But it's the same number of words. So I guess that's the that's the point is you want to build in like the complexity of the definition rather than like word length, for example. Right. Yeah, yeah, and I yeah. guess syntactic or whatever is referring to the definition. Complexity right. So that's why by my life, we should prefer simpler definitions or theories and terms over those of... Um, more complex theories or terms because the more complex theories or terms are less likely to be true. I'm, I'm happy to grant that for this conversation. I, I yeah, think, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I think, I mean, I think your, your critiques about parsimony with respect to finite theism, like apply pretty substantially to, I think a lot of accounts of omnipotence because they say, you know, you say like all, all X is like a very simple theory uh, like Callum Miller makes this kind of argument, you know, this is like relevantly similar to universal generalizations in science and stuff. But like mm -hmm. that only applies to unrestricted omniproperties because like once you add the restrictions to omniproperties that everyone adds, you know, you, like you say, God can do all physically possible things or whatever. Um, that's like more complicated than all things. And, but like the omniproperties are, you know, God can do all metaphysically possible things or maybe they like, you know, there's all sorts of different renditions that add exceptions to the rule. And then like finite, you know, like the finite one, I mean, in one simple way is just God can do all finitely possible things. And then like, is that? Okay. You know? Well, yeah, yeah. Like, like that would be great if finite theists were like, okay, here's what the restriction is. And that's, I'm putting that forward, which I, I think like omnitheists are sort of putting forward, like, okay, it's everything that would not entail a contradiction were it to be brought about or something like that, or everything that would be in line with a, a perfect being's nature to bring about or something like that. But like, as I see it, like the, the, the limited theists are kind of just saying, oh, it's, well, it's limited. <laughs> it's finite. <laughs> like, even if you were to say, okay, God can bring about anything that would be, uh, anything that would be finite. And that just means like, okay, well, God could create a world with finitely many creatures, uh, but it's like billions upon billions, and they're all living a perfectly happy life. But earlier you were kind of saying like, well, that's not really the kind of world that God could create. So just like there's, you know, a bajillion different account, like omni-different accounts, there's or models, you know, there's going to be like a bunch of different finite models. And I think like my model 
I think is like at least good enough specificity before I've like really filled out the research program for it to just say like God has sufficient power and knowledge to create the universe and, and not significantly more than that. And like, yeah, we need to do some work to figure out what that is. Same, same as we need to do some work to figure out, you know, which things are logically incoherent or which things are metaphysically impossible based on whatever, you know, definition of omnipotence you want to, you want to give. But yeah, like that's, you know, so I think like your critiques do apply like, you know, there's a lot of different finite theist models, and I think that the same is true. There's a lot of different omnitheist models, and I look at them, and they're all like a giant, you know, jumbo maze and everything. Um, but like, you know, I think I gave a reason to motivate a specific model that, you know, at least encapsulates how much power, um, you know, I guess like, I'm not saying that solves everything. Again, give me some more time, maybe. I'll, uh, I'm working on it. But, uh, but yeah, like, you know, so what do you think about that? And, like, I, yeah. I, I just want to jump in really quickly with the recommendation on the previous two topics about the the simplicity stuff and the GRU paradox stuff. This I don't know for what reason you'd want to read more about the GRU stuff, but like that that part of so I was, you know, I just finished Michael Humer's book, Understanding Knowledge about epistemology, and they're like both of these things are coming out. No, understanding knowledge is oh, the book. Oh, the other one. Okay. Yeah. Um but um <laughs> correcting me about Michael Humer. <laughs> but uh no, the section on the Gru paradox, I was like just struggling through. It was just so, but anyway, the stuff about simplicity was like super interesting because he's also kind of like critical of simplicity as like a virtue. Right. But he he breaks it down um, like different kinds of simplicity and values they have in different contexts. But if you're if you're listening to this and you're interested in like who would criticize simplicity as a virtue, I thought that was like a super accessible um, uh, treatment of it. So yeah, check out yeah. check out that book. And his his paper when parsimony is a virtue. Yeah, we're good. Ever since cashing in those checks, <laughs> <laughs> he pays me one penny every time I recommend the book. <laughs> um, okay, uh, one last sort of area of topic I wanted to sort of touch on was your argument from fine tuning for finite theism. Um, so I, I guess I have a question: like, why should we assume that your notion of God? would be able to bring about all and every anthropic uh, possible world rather than like there being some anthropic worlds that just lie outside of his power. Because like the way you just articulated, you said God has the power to create our universe and not much more than that. Seems like, well, we then we could sort of limit God's uh, power to God can only create this very one particular universe. Um, and so if there are other anthropic universes besides this one well those would lie outside of god's power it wouldn't lie outside of uh an omnitheistic version of god's power but at least depending on how how powerful we really want to say that god is uh it could like there could be a lot of worlds that you couldn't bring it out like what you had mentioned earlier like a world with no gratuitous evil that would be an anthropic world that um would not be something that uh, a finite version of god could bring about so yeah Anyway, uh, I was just wanting to point out, I think your argument rests upon the assumption that a finite God could bring about any and all anthropic worlds, uh, but an omnitheist conception of God uh, can only bring about the non-anthropic worlds. I'm not sure why we should think that to be the case at all. So I guess first thing is, 
so just speaking on uh, finite theism as like a family of theories. So like the omnitheist is always going to be on whatever like spectrum when we're looking at for the parameter that is a function of power. Like the omnitheist is always going to be like at the edge and there's going to be a lot of finite models that are going to be like all over here. And some of them are, are going to be like less than the anthropic range. Um, and so we should rule those out. Um, but I think there's going to be some that are like guaranteed to be outside of the anthropic range for all of the, like the parameters that I point out. So I think that's a relevant point for my specific model. Like, okay, not significantly more, like not, you know, a hundred times more power to create the universe or something. So like, we shouldn't assume it. We, we need to actually look at the parameters and, so like in the in the dimensionality case, um, it would definitely be correct because the anthropic range is exactly, you know, one point in that like space. Um, so that's like definitely true. In other cases, it actually turns out, I mean, I can I can show something. Um, it turns out that like the anthropic range or like our the the value that our universe takes on of like the, the parameters in question are um, along the dimension that scale with power, very close, like very, very close to the edge of the anthropic range. I mean, I can show you uh, some of the, let me. Yeah, yeah. So like, here's an example, uh, looking at the fine structure constant. So like the power required increases along this x-axis here. And so if we're talking like within a factor of 100 of like our value, which is like this one around 0 0.01, then like the anthropic range ends at like, what, 0 0.02 or something. Um, so that's like well within the range. If in the y-axis is like power neutral because it's a mass ratio, so it doesn't matter. So like it, it only takes adjusting the fine structure constant by like a factor of two or something rather than say like a factor of 100 or something that i think i mentioned in the restriction on or like kind of similar with strong force and fine structure constant uh, or i guess the strong force is really a better example because it might be that fine structure turns out to be neutral because it's a ratio of fundamental parameters but um so i haven't updated this but strong force uh, the coupling constant for example the anthropic range ends yeah i mean you can like barely see barely see it so if you increase power by like a factor of you know 1.2 or something mm -hmm. then uh then like you no longer have a life permitting universe so it doesn't really take um yeah i think similar with the, an the anthropic restraints on like the court masses um so it ends up being like well within a factor of a few um to in order to like uh to create that universe so i think um so so yeah i guess like we need to look at the parameters and i do think the parameters seem to suggest that like just a little bit more power would actually encompass the entirety of the anthropic range so yeah if god's power pretty much maxes out at about whatever range of anthropic range that we happen to have there's a sense in which like we're kind of lucky <laughs> that god happens to have just enough power to create our universe and not any more than that or not much less than that um mm -hmm. but that's 
like that level of complexity almost like demands a designer in a sort of sense. Like, <laughs> wait, why would why would we be lucky that he doesn't have more power? Well, that's what part of the theory is that God's uh, able to create a universe, our universe, but not much more powerful than that. Like, we're lucky that God had the power to create our universe. Um, and if he didn't have that power, like, we'd be out, of, out straight out of luck. Um, well, and yeah, I guess I try. I tried to say, you know, um, like based on based on God's omni properties, not seemingly demonstrated in nature. Like I think a finite God is the best explanation of that. And then we say, well, what what kind of finite God? And I would think like, you know, when looking at the universe, like I mean, it is epistemological in nature, and I think that's fine to like. We're trying to posit things to explain the data that we have. Um, and so, like, once, you know, I think the finite God is the best explanation of not seeing omni properties. And then, like, okay, well, how restricted? Then we say, like, well, I don't think he would do significantly worse than his best because he's interested in, like, displaying his attributes and glory and having a relationship with his creatures. Um, and so I think, like, yeah, he wouldn't want to do significantly worse than his best. And so we can look at the universe and see, like, how much that requires. And so it wouldn't be significantly better than that because um because of that reason yeah so, so i was like, curious of what that even means like the, the world does not um signify god's sort of omni properties being exhibited within them but like what what would that even look like like would that mean like if there were an infinite number of stars or people or galaxies it would like would that signify like omnipotence because oh well there's no limit to the number and so there's it's, it's, okay something sort of like that but because yeah. we do think that there's a limit we say oh well he's probably limited to that yeah yeah like yeah like infinities um that are uh like manifest i think would be would be one like all the ones that we see are turn out to be non-physical and mm -hmm. and i mean just generally like i I, th I do think it i generally do think it is surprising that whenever people run these types of cosmological arguments like basically everyone like says hey we didn't show that god is omnipotent like you know we need we need other things um, mm -hmm. to get there right. and like that does just i don't know that does you know strike me as genuinely pretty surprising so yeah maybe sure. maybe some type of actual infinity right um, so like if we were to like scientifically discover that our universe does have an infinite past that would be like a strike against the finite theistic model it's like well there's an infinite property here in the universe and a finite being wouldn't be able to instantiate that infinite property. Yeah, I think so. Um, so I guess like, yeah, we need to distinguish like actual infinites and potential infinites because I would think like, so if God, and I think past is, so it, it depends a lot on like what, what kind of things you think are going on with the beginning of the universe and actual infinities and all that stuff. But for example, like the future, um, you know, a finite God could put the universe in place, set it in motion, and then just let it go. And that would, that could continue indefinitely. So it's not like future eternal, like that would be a potential benefit and um, potential infinite. So I don't think that would be evidence of a finite God or against a finite God. Past, mm -hmm. um, an infinite past, I think would, uh, yeah, it depends on, like... The theory of time, maybe? Like, yeah. if that is an actual infinite, then maybe there would be a problem. But if it's 
like it's just God doing something an infinite number of times. Yeah, because not even an infinite is becoming an infinite. It's approaching right. And some and some finite theists like they actually take like they they think that like the universe is eternal, and so part of God's limits is he couldn't couldn't actually like create ex nihilo. Mm. So that's I wouldn't want to go that route. Like I want to go there. Like I accept the Kalam. So you know I. I don't know. But it sounds I like a very based route that maybe some people might want. To, <laughs> I don't know. Like, yeah, a, you know, like time that. is past infinite and God didn't create ex nihilo. He formed the world out of pre existing material. I don't know. This is sounding kind of cool to me. I, don't know. <laughs> I can't put my finger on why, but. <laughs> I, I am fine with like a creation ex, ex deo or whatever. That sounds, that sounds pretty cool too. Um, yeah. So, so I would think like. We should see some actual infinites in creation. Um, yeah. yeah. Regarding the argument, though, like, is there a sense in which you're almost like presuming that an omnipotent God would be constrained by our our particular set of physics? Like, um, the reason, like, there couldn't there be like a greater amount of anthropic universes that don't rely upon our particular laws of physics and nature where like god just sort of like designs these creatures that are able to i don't know withstand the vast uh vacuum of space like god could just sort of like create those and sustain them and like that would be an anthropic world that god could create or an omnipotent god could create that would fly outside the range of powers that a finite god could create wait so are you are you mostly pointing out like god could vary the physical laws or that like there could be an infinite number of anthropically permitting worlds yeah yeah i guess which which... omnipotent power any world basically that god could create could also allow it to sustain creatures in that world basically by altering the the laws to it that world altering the laws yeah yeah altering the laws or creating new laws or just creating creatures that don't rely upon those particular laws. Yeah. So I guess I think, I think like the dialectic is kind of significant here in the sense that, you know, there's something in this vicinity that looks like now you're, you're going to end up like not even having a fine tuning argument. If you don't think like, if you think that there's like an infinite number, like all the way around then like your probabilities just go to crap. And so like you can't actually make, like a fine-tuning argument if you think there's like an unbounded number well we can Um, compare like omnitheism to naturalism or something like that like if naturalism were true we'd be very lucky to have happened to find ourselves in the world with this particular set of laws because there's a lot of worlds under naturalism in which there wouldn't be uh creatures like us that could exist even if although um if theism were true there would be a great many plenty of worlds in which uh there could be things that exist or creatures like us that exist. So, so I, normally with fine tuning, you end up saying like, "Hey, there's some physically motivated bounds on like possible universes, and then God can create anything in these bounds, and there's some anthropic range that's smaller, and then God's like interested in life, so like that boosts the probability b- probability of this range." And so, you know, if we want to talk about like expanding so so you know i guess like a lot of people luke barnes and stuff usually want to say hey let's just fix the laws so that this is like a manageable parameter space um and just like vary the constants so if you want 
to do that, then I would think you need to, um, yeah, I guess like, why wouldn't that still be available? Like, I, cause I don't think, like, I think God could have chosen different laws, even in the finite case. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess. Uh, so you're my, in the same boat as me, basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think, I think I could say the same thing. Um, but I would, there would still, I would think we both need to agree that there's like some physically bounded range still in order to even get a fine tuning argument out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we could like sort of like prefix this argument, like given the set of uh, law, uh, physical laws that we're familiar with, there are some cosmological constants that would allow for life and other cosmological constants that would not allow for life. Yeah. Um, and so on omnitheism, all of those cosmological constants are open to God, whereas li- on limited theism, not all of those are open to God. And so it's just going to be right. more probable, I guess, that right. um, it, our, our world was designed by one of those um, yeah. finite gods. Yeah. So then, so let's see, I think, so, if, so and then I guess by the same token, maybe like there's some... I guess, yeah, okay, so I guess one thing you could say is that, so God can choose physical laws, but in the same way, there's still a limit to the to the laws that he could create, like some kinds of physical laws are going to be more difficult to, like, deal with, so, like, something that involves, like, 40 different physical laws, and they're all infinite dimensional, but there's, you know, um, I forgot what it's called, like compartmentalization or contraction or whatever. So it just like ends up being four dimensions anyway. So like, but so that seems available to you to be able to say like, there's some anthropically permissible worlds that the omnitheist can create by varying the laws that at least like the finite theist um, can create. Mm -hmm. And that would be unwieldy to like evaluate, but uh, that seems available to you. So yeah, that seems... All right. Um, one last point I wanted to go over uh, regarding that, just before we can go into questions, is um, so you had mentioned though that like both for the finite theist and the omnitheist, there were, we would presume that there's a general preference by God to create an anthropic world or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not sure then if we have that preference within God on both cases why adding more possibilities that fall outside that preference like changes the probability that we would find in a, uh, an anthropic world. Uh, just as an example, like, um, do you have a favorite flavor of ice cream? Um, caramel, I guess. Caramel. Okay, so let's say that caramel is your flavor of I- your favorite flavor of ice cream. That's your flavor of choice. So whenever we can predict, then, whenever you enter into an ice cream score, uh, ice cream score, you're going to more times than not, pick caramel as as a flavor option. Now, let's imagine you went into an ice cream store that only served ten flavors, and you more we'd have a good bet that you're going to pick caramel as an option. And so, when you walk out with caramel, that is a successful prediction. Now, let's say that you entered into a store with a hundred different flavors. Like, should we st- like shouldn't we still predict that you're going to come out with caramel? Because, like, that's your favorite. That's what you prefer. So the adding of more options doesn't actually, like, change our prediction space with regards to what we should expect as an outcome. That's kind of the point I wanted to make regarding your argument. Yeah. 
I think that's a good thought. I do think that, um, so I guess like it kind of does have to reduce the probability. I mean, it, I mean, surely like the probability isn't exactly zero that I'm going to pick a new flavor of ice cream or like a different flavor of ice cream. So there's inherent uncertainties about God's motivations and things like that. So like, yeah, I do think it's well motivated to think that God's going to care about life, but like, you know, surely, and this, this kind of the, you know, um, the fine tuning argument runs on the, on the assumption, not that like God is certainly going to create life or something like that. But just that it's way more probable than on naturalism that it's going to create life, and so like if you think about the probability space um, across like all the set of parameters on naturalism, it's like flat or let's go with some, something like that. It's going to be like approximately uniform for a good chunk of it or something, and then the theist model might be a little bit more smushed. So it's like for the anthropic range, but there's still going to be these like tails mm -hmm. that are going to drop off. Um, but they're not going to go to zero. I don't think. Right. So like, even if, so I think like strictly speaking, if you don't think they go to zero, mm -hmm. like the probability has to increase yeah, for yeah, the yeah. finite theist. Well, that, um, that's actually a great. Cause like now when thinking about it, it like, yeah, the, there is still going to be that probability space that you're going to pick a different option. But for the finite theist case, that probability space is spread out between, let's say, 10 different options. Whereas for the omnitheist, it's spread out between 100 different options. So each of those individual things that go along that sort of uh, wider angle are going to have a lower probability than the finite theist will. Because like of those 10 options, he's going to have a greater than 50% chance to pick one of the anthropic ones. And then for, let's say, the the 20% chance outside this and 20% chance outside there, just to sort of add up to 100. Whereas under um, theism, if we say that God has a preference towards creating uh, anthropic worlds, then there's going to be a greater than 50% chance that he creates one of those worlds within that anthropic range. And then it's going to be still 20% um, chance and 20% on the edges outside that range, but it's going to be split up between a lot more different options. The, under theism. So any one of those particular options is going to have a lower probability on the omnitheistic picture of the world than the limited theistic picture of the world, because the limited theistic picture of the world just has a sp smaller amount of options. So the probability space isn't spread out as thinly. Uh, that sounds good. I don't understand what that, what does that do to the argument? Well, Can you it means that, me that there's a higher probability on finite theism that we would we would find ourselves in or we wouldn't find ourselves to exist because there's a higher probability that God would create one of those worlds outside the anthropic range because they have a higher probability by themselves. Whereas on the omnitheistic world, it's spread more thinly because there's a greater amount of them. Um, so in thinking about it as like ice cream flavors, God, you have a higher preference for caramel. And so you just split out all of your other preferences between either the 10 ice cream flavors or among the, the uh, 99 other uh, ice cream flavors. And so if on the 99 other ice cream flavors, each individual ice cream flavor is going to have a lower probability than in the case where you have 10 other ice cream flavors, because they're going to have a higher probability with regards to the, the whole probability space. I think I, think I would want to say here that like as far as motivations are concerned, I think the finite theist and omnitheist are on 
um, roughly similar grounds with the same strength of thinking that like they're going to create anthropic worlds so that such that like you know god's still omnibenevolent and god is still personal so he's going to have interest in these personal interactions and like creating good things so i guess yeah i guess it's un- unclear to me why the uh like if the, the so it seems like the shape of the curve is going to be similar in both cases but like the tails are just going to extend like they're still both going to look like that yeah they both still have to add up to 100 percent though so yeah so if, if i just like chop off yeah it's going to be a lot smaller right. probabilities outside that bell i mean if it's the same ah okay i see what you mean yeah i kind of wish like i had like thought of this earlier so i could like have the diagram <laughs> like okay here you have this and this and but yeah yeah so so i guess like if we still think we have the same the same motivations apply so the it seems like that that kind of fixes the probability on the anthropic worlds but then i just think like outside of the anthropic worlds yeah like so i think the, the fact that we have the same motivations uh, or have the same like source of motivations um or thinking that god has the same motivations whatever um that kind of fixes the probabilities of the anthropic worlds but then like i distribute my credence across like an additional 10 worlds for example you distribute them across 100 mm-hmm. but like since they all they're all going to add up to one and um like i'm yeah your non-anthropic worlds are going to have a higher probability than my non-anthropic worlds like each yeah, individual okay. non-anthropic world is going to have a higher like yeah so there's almost like an argument against finite theism given this oh oh okay well okay so no so i think i think yeah so i think like the shape is different Okay, yeah, I I I'll need to think about it. I'll think yeah, about yeah. it some more. I think you're okay. wrong, but I need <laughs> okay. to think about it. <laughs> no, yeah, that's that's a that's a good thought. Yeah. Alex has been stunned into submission. You never admit your opponent has a good thought, Alex. What the yeah. hell? How dare you? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling, <laughs> feeling extra generous tonight. This is, this is Alex's first appearance on like any channel or podcast, right? Um, some, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Oh. And I don't want to be too uh, too mean to John. So, oh yeah, I forgot. Sam Sam uh, had a, a thought that I we didn't return back to question mark um, about probability. Did we answer that? In I I'm that not discussion? sure. He he's. I I mean, there have been a bunch of comments since then. I th- I think I lost it. But um, oh, okay. Um, I did want to return to some biblical issues quickly. Like um, you know, to what extent is your commitment john or you know alex like your like attraction to omnitheism like to what extent is that informed by the bible like are the omni properties in the bible do you think like or suggested in the bible um and you know like are there other theological concerns that might play a role like um trent horn made a video recently about how uh, you know he was critiquing mormonism and at one point he said, well, you know, one problem with Mormons is that they're atheists or no, he said one problem is that they don't believe in God. And, um, you know, like that's a pretty significant theological constraint. If you think like a finite God is not God, 
So like if you're worried, I mean, we were joking earlier about how like if we were having this debate in the 17th century, John would accuse Alex of atheism and then, um, you know, like the, and I would win because you would be Brenda. So. <laughs> um, yeah, everyone was getting accused of atheism back then for like minor theological misfemes, <laughs> but like, you know, so like that's one example of a possible theological constraint is like, you know, does this even count as God? Um, some people say it definitely doesn't. Um, but yeah, like, so to what extent are the omni properties in the Bible? Um, do both of you think? And, you know, like, does that inform your view here? We can start with John. Um, well, okay. I, I think that the Bible is like a collection of books that sort of progress over the salvation history of humanity. And I think that that story is being told from the perspective of humanity as it's undergoing that progression. So there are no, things. John, sorry to interrupt. No offense, but that sounds like some liberal gobbledygook. Just going to throw that out there. <laughs> okay, uh, but please continue. <laughs> okay, thanks. <laughs> so I do think that the ancient uh, Hebrew Israelites did have a pretty strong conception of God, at least with regards to like thinking of God as more powerful than the rest of the gods that might exist in the world. Um, but I'm not so sure that they thought that God was all powerful, mostly because I'm not so sure that they had a strong philosophical background in which to sort of like think about theology in that sort of way. It seemed like their theology was much more personal and maybe just much more, um, I don't know, given to them without a lot of like critical thought uh, regarding it. So I think that there are passages in scripture that can both uh, point towards a finite version of God that the uh, biblical authors were conceptualizing, as well as later as the, the progression continues, it leans more towards a sort of omni-powerful conception of God. So I would think that the more modern uh, conception of God as being all-powerful would just be a sort of natural progression as the sort of like theological history has played itself out. This is where I, this is where I think I should do. I'm supposed to do a rant on like Greek philosophy influenced the Christian tradition. Blah blah. <laughs> they wouldn't accept it otherwise, and all that. You know, Augustine was ruined by Plato and whatever. I don't know, but I don't think like I don't know. Like I think I think it's a an omnitheist like kind of has a better explanation of the biblical data. Uh, I don't think it's like really that straightforward. So I don't think it's like as nearly as strong as people think or tend, tend to think and tend to react so violently to atheism. <laughs> um, but I think it says probably, right there, he's the king of kings. It could not possibly be more clear. That's, true. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> um, I should have uh, should have considered that before yeah, I got on. I, it doesn't say I, you know, with man, this is impossible. But with the limited God, uh, most things are possible. <laughs> so hey we all think all things are possible except you know what's not so i think like um yeah i guess the the only other thing like i think from a, like systematic theological perspective you know i am a dirty calvinist so you know i'm like a four-point calvinist so that's a pretty strong requires to go wait, 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 wait. you believe in limited atonement no, that's the one I reject. 
<laughs> oh, <So>. what a twist. <laughs> oh, <yeah>. Right. <laughs> so um, I was trying to hide that fact into, at least until the end so people would actually listen to you. <laughs> I didn't yeah, want to come out of the cave. And, and he's a Calvinist. <laughs> no, I mean, like, um, the Calvinist position's unlimited atonement is definitely the more theological or the more morally uh, uh, approachable, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I try right. not I mean, to use the words. It, it, there's unlimited atonement. So that sounds like there's no limit to how much atonement. Yeah, yeah. But I was I was thinking like, so I'm I'm trying to build on this creator theology stuff, and that's like Jonathan Quanvig's work, and he argues that um, divine conservation is like part of creation, and so God would be like super like intimately involved with every single part of creation but like i don't know it's unclear to what extent anyway so the point is that seems like if that's um like a really strong notion of divine conservation and sustaining of the universe uh but not necessarily would automatically get me the omni properties then maybe I could get what I want, like with God having total control over and knowledge of the cosmos. I don't know. Yeah. Well, one concern, like if God is the creator of all things other than himself, it seems like that would not allow for there to be any sort of like metaphysical laws or constraints regarding the world that reside outside his power. Cause like anything other than himself, like if there was some like causal law regarding like, I don't know, the, the structure of the world, like that would be something God would have created, right? But like it seems almost like if we take that strong creator theology, it might still wind up to be omnipotence on a strong sense. So that was that was one thing I was trying to mention earlier. Like this is this is something Quanvig talks about, which is that in order to even have a connection between creation though and like whatever some outcome, mm-hmm. um, you know, there has to be seems like there needs to be something in place to connect the two and to say that God makes that connection would be, it seems like that would introduce a regress. So like what makes it such that like God creating what he thinks is X would end up actually being X as opposed to Y Um, in like physical context, laws of nature do that. And so seemingly maybe like a metaphysical law. Anyway, I haven't, that was, part of what that was supposed to do but i'm not sure about that i need to like read and think more about that but yeah yeah okay i can see then how like yeah it's sort of like inherent constraint within god maybe that it's not the case that there's something outside god that's sort of inhibiting his powers just a sort of like inherent limitation to him Sure. I would also reference people back to the the first limited God debate I had between Caleb, you know, dry apologist and Joseph LDS philosophy. We actually did spend like 10 or 15 minutes just talking about the concept of limitations, you know, and like what, what that could mean. And um, anyway, some good stuff covered there. But I did have um, a kind of a quick question, I guess. Like, do you guys think that a finite God could be a necessary being? Yes, definitely. Yeah, it seems like it could. Yeah, because like if I think that a natural entity could be a, a necessary being, it seems like similarly that could be said about a a, a, a finite god. It's just going to be like maybe a finite god introduces more instances of necessity that are going to be unexplained, and so we should prefer 
like at least omnitheism that has like one power that's goes unexplained basically it's not all powerful this um and i would have similar objections to like oh it's this physical entity that exists at, as a necessary foundation for the world and it has this precise shape and form and this precise shape of, or this precise amount of power and limitation and those are just going to feel very arbitrary so yeah i think i think that there's also um, with creator theology, there's kind of like an internal way to justify um, like the necessity of God. And since that's compatible with finite theism, then I think that that would work. So if you have, so just like first off, um, I mean, especially in a context of like a stage two cosmological argument, but, but like, I think it's independently plausible that necessarily like something exists, just like the rejection of metaphysical nihilism. Um, so like, you know, it's impossible to, conceive of nothing for example like that gives some reason to think it's impossible for there to be nothing or like various arguments to this effect to think that like something is necessary um not necessarily an individual thing could be different things in different worlds so then we're gonna we're gonna let's call that object o and we're gonna look at like every every world um and in that world, like O is either God or it's not God. And if it is God, then God exists in that world. And if it's not God, um, then on creator theology, God created that thing. And so if he created it, then he therefore exists. And so God exists in all worlds where O is both God and not God, and O necessarily exists, so therefore God necessarily exists. So I think that's kind of like an internal way. You just Wait, have like one. Where O is both God and not God? That would be either, it. It's either God or not okay. God. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so either, and either one of them implies that God exists because God is necessarily the source of all other things. I see. And so, so like this is your ontological God, argument that you were just pre presenting. I gotcha. Okay. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because so. it's necessarily the case that either O or not O. Boom. Thanks, Darren. <laughs> Appreciate it. <laughs> um, I do have one more question for you guys um, before we before we sign off here, maybe cover some some closing thoughts. Um, a non-alchemist raised the issue of like worship worthiness. So for Alex, do you think a limited God is less worthy of worship than an omni-God? For John, why would a rational soul reject the opportunity for union with the good personified? So let's start with Alex. So a couple of thoughts here, I guess generally no. Um, so like Swinburne's account of worship, like I think, so I guess there's a few different accounts. Um, I guess one of those is like creation-based. And so like naturally creator theology, I think is conducive to that. So God created our lives with great value. And, that, and so worship is like a fitting response to that. And combine that with um, God being omnibenevolent, so there, there seems like there might need to be like an infinite goodness restriction for worship worthiness. So, yeah, I think like God um, kind of like creating our lives with super great value and being infinitely good um, and at least more powerful and knowledgeable than every other being. How much? <laughs> Wait, infinite goodness? Okay. Yeah, that's right. Gotcha. I okay. can accept that. Okay. Um, then like that seems seems to be everything we need um another thought along those lines is that if so if we think about like let's consider the possibility that there's a greater being than the finite god that is necessarily the um like the creator of all else 
um, if that if that God exists in the same world as the finite God, like if so, we have reason to think the finite God exists. So if there's if we think about this other possibly greater being, if that if that also exists, then the finite God created that one. And if it's like, but the finite God is uncreated, and so and the other one is created by the finite God, so it would seem like it would be lesser in a significant way um, by that. Um, by that thought than the finite God. So it seems like that would be a contradiction to say that there's like something greater than that God. So I think that on creator theology, a finite God would still be um, the greatest being that exists. Right. Yeah. It's like, uh, I mean, you, you posted this thing on Twitter today. I can't remember the guy's name, but he was um, talking about how, you know, there's this distinction between like an unsurpassably great being like a being who's unsurpassable in greatness or power versus a being who just is in fact unsurpassed. <laughs> like he's the most right. powerful being. He's an unsurpassed, he's unsurpassed in power, but like you can conceive of something that's more powerful. Like he's not an unsurpassably great being. Um, and that's like something a, a finite theist could believe in is a being that's like unsurpassed in power, even if you can conceive of a being that's more powerful. Right. Okay. Yeah. So then, like, if we were to imagine a world where there was uh, a, a finite God that sort of resides at its base level, and this finite God is so inherently constrained that the only thing it can produce is, I don't know, one soul that exists in like perfect union with him or something like that. Like, that would be the case where that being would be unsurpassed in greatness because there's no other things besides that one soul that was created by it. But it seems like there's going to be a lot greater sorts of world or greater sorts of beings than that, that would have higher power, like the ability to create two souls or three, so on and so forth. Like, would you say in that world that that being was God because it matched your, or qualified, met all your qualifications for God? Well, so I guess I wouldn't want to say God is fundamentally like the unsurpassed okay. being. Um, like I still would want to say God is like the creator. Um, and I think it's fine to so like if God if there is nothing else. Um, yeah, I guess like I still would say it's it's fine to like. I think there's fine to like stipulate some additional like intuitive requirements um i guess like really same as omnitheists do like even if we give some account like surely you know rocks aren't a mission or whatever like mm -hmm. we, we should introduce some some like constraints um and i wouldn't want to say like unsurpassed is like sufficient for god or something like we should we should um yeah because i was also kind of thinking like on um graham oppie's sort of model of the world there is a sort of like necessary being that technically created the rest of our world it just did so accidentally it's not like a conscious being or anything like that i wouldn't want to say that that's i mean if naturalism were true that would be like the unsurpassed being of greatness just I, I don't think that was being presented as like a definition of god or something it was just okay. saying like yeah, yeah. You, you still believe in something that is like you know very very powerful i guess or something. Yeah, yeah. um so okay so john um why would a rational soul reject the opportunity for union with the good personified? Yeah, so like I had mentioned before, I think that in order for someone to truly experience God in his fullness, they must, um, I guess, sort of give up their own conception of themselves as a perfectly moral being. So they would have to, like, admit that they need correction 
and they need to undergo moral transformation in order to both deserve to live in perfect happiness with God, but also in order to fully experience God as he is fully. Like there needs to be like a person uh, of our world is not perfectly capable of apprehending what the good is. And so they need to undergo a significant amount of moral transformation in order to understand what the good is of itself. But a person's moral character is something that belongs to them as part of their personal autonomy. Like, I don't think that anyone can be forced to undergo moral transformation. It must be something that they willfully uh, accept or undergo. Um, and so I don't like, yeah. And I, I think that a person could theoretically just be unwilling to undergo that sort of transformation. And that would be like within both their right and within their power to do so. And if someone was unwilling to undergo that sort of moral transformation, it would, by my lights, be immoral for God to sort of force it upon them because that's explicitly going against their wishes. And plausibly enough, a person's moral character is something that is inherently their own, that they have full personal autonomy over, that like it's their right that they don't have to undergo moral um, completion. Uh, or perfection, um, and so like yeah. I, I think mean, God... you are you are talking to a consequentialist and someone who's almost a consequentialist. So okay. we're not really going to be that convinced. We're like, what? oh, you can right. never violate rights. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, not a rights violation well, to no. make things much, much, much better. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, that that's my sort of like reasoning as to why there is a possibility for hell. Um, and like even using the word hell, people will automatically think of like demons raping you in the ass with pitchforks <laughs> and stuff like that. But like my while, while Thomas Aquinas is watching it with <laughs> like, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah. you don't believe in the the I don't know cartoonish version of hell, I guess, which like maximum like maximum negative utility <laughs> like forever. Right. Um, okay, but you still think hell sucks though. It's a very bad state to end up in, and it never ends. Yeah, I think it it sucks relatively given what they give up. Like a person gives up a perfect moral happiness with God and in doing so they are settling for a much lesser form of happiness, if happiness at all. Either that person doesn't desire to go and undergo any sort of moral transformation and maybe they're kept in, in existence because um, they want to continue to exist as they are. Um, or maybe God sort of diminishes their capacities and their faculties to where they no longer become a being of intellect and they can exist happily as a non-rational being in the new heavens and the new earth. Like they could technically be part of heaven in a sense. They just wouldn't be enjoying it as fully as those that have accepted uh, sanctification from God. They wouldn't really be like a moral agent anymore. I mean, yeah. like, but you are imagining a world where there's like a lot of like dramatic evolution, you know, of us like post-mortem, you know, like, or they're almost like different kingdoms or something we're ending up in post-mortem, you know, for like for different types of people, basically. Uh, yeah. So like the idea that um, a person that didn't desire to undergo further moral transformation, maybe, or maybe was actively willing against um, God the God would prevent them from committing sins further. And so in doing so would prevent their, let's say their will or their powers of the intellect. And so they would become almost like an animal in some sense to where there's still something it's like to be that person. And they'll be able to be sustained in existence for all of eternity, but they'll be sustained in the new heavens and the new earth in which there is like 
the capacity to have happiness and things like that. It's just not a perfect happiness with God. So you, you don't think anyone is going to like suffer horribly for all of time? I don't know. Like it, it depends upon whether or not suffering is a um, fitting response to a person's um, sins. Like if a person deserves to suffer for what they've done, then maybe it is the case that there will be a finite amount of suffering that that person will undergo before they are, say, uh, reduced in, in their capacities to be able to still enjoy the rest of eternity at, in a much more diminished state than the beatified. But not infinite suffering. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Cool. <laughs> I was just getting clear. I mean, this is like a continuation of like a conversation we started on Twitter like a few days ago, in case people are just kind of wondering, like, okay. why are you going off on this tangent? I was just wondering what your views were, because I thought you did subscribe to Eternal Conscious Torment or like some kind of watered down version of it or something. But I, I just, you told me that you didn't anymore. So I was just curious. what you thought. Yeah, if anyone's curious, uh, I had a conversation with Dry Apologist and Christian Idealism on his channel where I sort of laid out. I guess two different models of hell that I find somewhat morally plausible. One in which the, the damned are sort of restricted and the other where they are transformed to a non-rational being. Um, and I think both of those are pretty, I don't know, they seem to jive fairly well with my moral intuitions, although there are still uh, concerns that could be brought up, I'm sure. Um, so is there anything else that either of you want to touch on before we go um thank you both for coming on it was a super interesting conversation um yeah, thanks yeah. A lot for having us. yeah absolutely yeah no, yeah, thank no you. I, just, uh, I was just gonna know. say thanks to alex for like agreeing to do this with me because like there was a point where i was like I'm, I'm in the process of somewhat writing a book and i've kind of like recognized oh there's some of these sort of problems with like finite versions of theism and naturalism uh, and so I wanted to sort of talk to somebody that was more sympathetic for that sort of view. So reached out to you and like very happy that you were able to talk with me. And yeah, great presentation today as well. Nice. Yeah. Thanks a lot for the having me on and inviting me. This was this was great. And uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully I gave some some people some reason at least to take finite theism a bit more seriously than they otherwise would. Um, I want. I want I want to see like the Scott Shulkovsky, he he wrote a paper about like finite theism and, and Christianity and, and I emailed him and I was like trying to trying to be like, yo, like you know, why aren't people talking about this? Do you know like where discussions of this are happening? He's like, Yeah, um, it's not really happening. I don't really know. And uh happening yeah, I wish Mormon I wish temples. it were too. What? It's happening in Mormon temples, that's where it's going yeah, on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So I just I want philosophy of religion to do more with it. So you know. Yeah, it is weirdly so, under discussed. Like I Yeah. I don't know. Like it was just I, I was trying to think like if I were going to debate you or someone who's like, you know, unabashedly like a limited theist or something, it's like what would the case be? Would it be the same? Like, I, I, I'm not sure yet. That's part of why I wanted to have like, um, why I was interested in doing this again. I mean, partly just because I think it's interesting for its own sake and because it's significantly different from the kind of perfect being unlimited theism. Um, but also I'm just like, do I actually have good reasons against like finite <laughs> theism? Like, do my reasons transfer right. over? Like, I'm not totally sure. Like I need to find out. So yeah, I need to yeah. think more about it. That was because that was definitely me. Like I, I was as I was getting into philosophy of religion, I was like, all of these arguments, you know, against are like 
Omni or against like Omni conceptions. And then like a lot of these arguments for they're like, Oh yeah, we, we didn't actually show Omni properties. So I'm like, Hmm, like why aren't people talking about finite theism? Everyone's just like, let me stipulate God is like try Omni or whatever. And I'm like, where's, you know, at least Nagasawa is like doing some revisionary stuff that I really like. Um, but yeah, so I was like, man, where's the love for finite theism? <laughs> Dang it, Darren. <laughs> Wrong direction. <laughs> Darren says, for those just listening, Darren says, I took finite theism seriously when this discussion began, but now I'm a new atheist. <laughs> I did a horrible job of paying for that. <laughs> All right. So, um, yeah, I guess we're gonna, I guess we're gonna leave it there. And, um, yeah, it's good to see you both again, at least virtually. So thank you guys for listening and I will talk to you next time.